Well, hi everybody, welcome to Stratosphere Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle, and uh, it is the 21st of July. Sorry, June, July, July. <sighs> this is going to be a strange night, I can feel it. Uh, just in a, I don't know, low energy mood, something like that. Uh, anyway, I hope everybody's doing well. It's good to see the whole crowd again. And um, as you can see, this thing gets smaller. Uh, yeah, black polo shirt in uh, in this kind of dark background. I, I look like the skull of Calderon. Uh, so um, I hope everyone's doing well. We're going to get to questions a lot earlier tonight. Uh, a couple quick little things to talk about first, but we're not going to uh, do the um, you know hour and a half uh, talking about things that we did last several episodes. Uh, couple things to talk about in that regard but other than that I think we'll just get right into the questions pretty quick um, all right let's see I do have uh, one thing to show you guys uh, and it's just uh, a minute a little over two it's about two minutes long um, what I've got is uh, when I showed the animation last time and I had all those words to begin with D um, I showed it without uh, subtitles so I put the subtitles in that helps a lot I opened up it's a tiny little bit it's got to come fast and I added one line that I think clarifies things so rather than uh, get everybody to submit to watching the whole thing again I just um, I just ran out that uh, just the the final beat there so I will play that for you as soon as I can get this window smalled up here here we go I need to unsmallen it. There, that's it. All right, here we go. So um, this is basically uh, what you've seen before. Added a line that clarifies the whole thing, and it's just the uh, it's just the D word exchange uh, with uh, subtitles, which actually really helps uh, if you um, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, and then we'll um, talk about one or two quick things, and we'll get going. All right. So I'm just going to go to the uh, to the page, and then we'll get this baby going. Dividimus populum, Latin. We divide people? That makes little sense. Thy Latin doth need burnishing, good prince. Dividimus populum doth mean we divide the people. Yet there above hangs the fiery letter D. That is the riddle we must solve. Tis visible for twenty leagues in all directions. It must have some meaning. Mayhaps we may guess at what the word the encircled D doth represent. Damaged? Dangerous. Dark. Deadly. Decadent. Decay. Deceitful. Decrepit. Defamatory. Defeatist. Defective. Defensive. Deficient. Deformed. Degenerate. Degrading. Delirious. Deluded. Demented. Demonic. Dependent. Deplorable. Depraved. Depressing. Deranged. Derogatory. This is great sport. Despairing. Despicable. Despondent. Destructive. Detestable. Detrimental. Devastating. Devious. Diabolical. Difficult. Dilapidated. Dim. Dingy. Dire, dirty. Disaffected. Disagreeable. Disappointed. Disapproving. Disarmed. Disastrous. Discourteous. Discredited. Discriminatory. Disdainful. Disease. Mm, disgraceful. Disgusting. Disheartening. Dishonest. Dishonorable. Disillusioned. Disingenuous. Disinterested. Dislikable. Disloyal. Dismal. Dismissive. Disobedient. Disorganized. Disparaging. Disrupted. Dissatisfied. Disturbed. Divisive. Dogmatic. Domineering. Downhearted. Drab. Drained. Dreadful. Dreary. Droopy. Drowsy. Drunk. Dubious. Dull. Duplicitous. Dwindling. Dysfunctional. Hmm. You win. <laughs> Brother, D is for dungeon, a place where slaves and prisoners are tortured and imprisoned. And we are here to free them, are we not? 
my favorite uh, is uh, Droopy. I just love Droopy. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's uh, uh, yeah, drab, drained. It was fun to play with the pace of those a little bit. As I mentioned uh, last time, uh, Zoe and I read them back and forth pretty fast, but when I edited them, I, I overlapped them. I made it faster than anybody could, could possibly go. So uh, the next time that people see uh, an encircled letter D, uh, hopefully these are similar words they'll, um, they'll think about. Uh, so moving on here, um, we uh, since uh, we spoke last, we were talking about the um, uh, crowdfunding issue and all the rest of it. Uh, since then, um, I saw on the Doomcock show, and then a couple of other times since then, um, the uh, the Ripaverse, where uh, you know, this couple of guys basically said, "Hey, uh, we're comic book artists. We're tired of the the whole woke BS over at Marvel. We want to set up our own uh, comic universe, and so we're coming to you for help." And they raised two and a half million dollars in six days. So. The idea is uh, is is sound, and I think really, for the first time, really actually right on the crest of this wave, and not behind it, or or so far ahead of it that you know nobody knows what you're doing. So um, so there's that, and then just one little question that I like to this is my little group therapy session here with a live uh, audience, especially, um, and and so the uh, question is. Um, getting from here to the raise uh, in order to do the raise for a million and a half two million dollars for the pilot we need a bunch of elements for the for the actual fundraiser we need animation that's keyed specifically to uh, the colonies this is what this story this is the rover that they live in this is the this is the exploration ship here's what alien contact looks like so we um so we have to get to that place uh, and I'm actually wondering what people thought about the idea of doing a, a, a crowdfunding raise to get to the crowdfunding raise. Or have I gone too meta on people? It, I don't particularly like that uh, idea. It doesn't feel good to me, but you know, who knows? Um, it sure would be an incremental uh, you know, step like that. So that's really about it in terms of the new step, other than to say that uh, it is, um, it's becoming uh, clear to me that this is really, really, really doable. Uh, whether or not um, people would be willing to crowdsource, uh, well, what they're really crowdsourcing, of course, is they're crowdsourcing the entire project. It's, that's what you need to get to to get the you know two million dollar raise and so on. Um, so it's a it's a possibility. Uh, but really, that's our—that's the only thing that's stopping us. Really, right at this moment, we need to—we need to get from here to there. I'm going to be having a call with um, with uh, the uh, future ruler of Earth tomorrow, and um, and just bounce the idea off of him and see how he feels about it. I'm not going to ask for commitment. I'm just going to kind of you know bounce it off of him. Uh, last night, uh, hold on, I got a link here from uh, GK Masterson. Something about Epic Monster Hunter International. Okay. Oh. Well, they've raised on Kickstarter. They've raised two hundred sixteen thousand um, dollars. I don't know what their target is. 
Uh, oh, their target was $50,000. They've raised 216000 Okay, maybe this is maybe this is time to just go. I will tell you this, and this is this is important. Um, uh, they did a pre-sale, not a crowdfund. You're right. Thank you for correcting me on that. I've been corrected on that twice already. Um, as I said last time, there's always been something in front of me, and that something has always been like the one million dollars or the ten million dollars or whatever you need to to you know, to get in, into that club. And um, and not long ago, I realized that could be four or five months away. And now I'm realizing um, uh, it may be even closer than that. So uh, I need to get a couple hundred grand in to be able to concentrate full time on what we need to get the raise raise. And then off we go. Um, so uh, maybe we'll just set that up, you know. Uh, pick a relatively no, low number so that, you know, we, it, we at least get that and then just just go for it. Um, so, uh, yeah, days, not months, exactly. So, anyway, that's uh, all good news and encouraging, encouraging feedback here from the, uh, from the Peanut Gallery. Uh, if you are old enough to know what the Peanut Gallery means, uh, it's time for you to go get your, uh, your, your heart checked. All right, so other than that, I think we're in pretty good shape here. Um, it's warm in here too, but uh, yeah, 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 you're right. So um, yeah, let's just get out there and do it. Uh, so let's go to, um, we'll go to billwhittle.com first, get those questions, and then we will go to Facebook uh, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's time to go. It's time to go, go, go. And here we go. Come on, creaky. I've been working today on a firewall. Uh, they found the Samuel B. Roberts, uh, the same guys that found the Johnson, and I'm going to tell the story of that, and I'm going to uh, do It's called quality. I'm getting concerned about um, what's happening to our military in terms of people that are getting in there. All right, here we go. Um, member form. Stretch funds, questions, and more. The Writers Club is looks like it's going great. GK and everybody else over there having a lot of fun, so that looks cool. 721, Stratosphere Lounge questions. If I go back, I'm never going to get anywhere. I got to just take them as we go. If, if, I, if you've asked questions and I haven't answered them in the BillWhittle.com member form, uh, I'm sorry to say just keep posting them. I'm, I'm trying to get through all of them uh, now, and, and you know we'll see, we'll see what we did. Uh, all right, so here we go. What do we got? Um, So, uh, GK Masterson, so what do you think of the house I bought? Uh, there's a link I'm, I'm clicking. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, congratulations. Uh, if this is the house that you uh, bought, that uh, GK put in uh, in the comment section that she's uh, buying a house. And there is a link, and it looks absolutely beautiful. So congratulations to you. Uh, and um, 
and we're very um, I'm very happy for you I'm sure everybody else here in the uh, in the in the lounge is, is very happy for you too that's just uh, that's just fantastic I want to pull these guys over here so I can see what I'm doing all right so um, that was that was a pleasant surprise hang on let's um let's jump on down and see what we got here furball three two one um, I'm going to just move this someplace where I can read it a little easier, sir. It's going fast, man. All right. Uh, in a recent op-ed at Daily Wire, Jordan Peterson argues that Russia is part of the West and that the Russia-Ukraine conflict is, in part, an extension of the cultural war. He also argues that whatever Putin's egomegalomania, lust for power, etc., Putin makes the case to his own people that he's protecting Russia's sphere of interest and that he's protecting Russia from leftist ideology that ruined Russia for 80 years. Thus, Peterson mentions that it's unrealistic to believe that Putin will be overthrown anytime soon and that by trying to humiliate Putin, the West would inadvertently humiliate the Russian people and we're playing with fire. Peterson thinks that we need to search for uh, resolutions to the problem that do not involve trying to force Putin to back down because he won't. We should instead seek agreement that NATO won't admit Ukraine or there be a 20-year hands-off agreement, something that ends the fighting before the coming oil and agricultural shortages reach biblical proportions or an expanded war. Many, including many fans of Jordan Peterson, thinks he doesn't know what he's talking about, that Putin does not have the support of the Russian people. He's only out for his own self-aggrandizement, etc. Your thoughts? Does your wife have any thoughts on how the Russian people would back Putin if, it, if push came to shove? I did see uh, out uh, excerpts of it. I didn't see the whole interview, but I did. I did see a, a little bit that was Peterson talking about how, if you think Putin's on his way out, you're, you're, that's just wishful thinking. Uh, so far, he's proven to be right, and I'm proven to be wrong. Uh, he's there much longer than I thought it would be. I, I said I thought he might be gone by the beginning of summer. It's middle of summer. Um, I, in terms of like personal feedback. Um, my my wife's mom, my mother-in-law, is has a very different opinion of what's going on in Ukraine than than we do, um, and that's because she's listening to all she can listen to, which is state-sponsored radio. And Putin has an iron grip on that, and he's not letting go of that. And I don't expect that's going to change. Um, there seems to be, from what I'm what I've been able to see. Uh, kind of a, a dividing line. We have a similar dividing line here too, between older people and younger people, between city people and, and rural people. Um, the younger people with more internet access and generally speaking, the, the metropolitan people, city people tend to be more um, outraged by what, I'm talking about Russians now, and that, and that the other group seems to be much more fired up about it. Um, so, I mean, I don't agree with his, I certainly don't agree with his medicine. Uh, his, his take may be the right one. Nobody really knows. All we're doing is guessing, really. However, um, the thing that I find, that I find so uh, inescapable is the loss rate and the loss of face in terms of the international community. Now, Peterson's point is, that Russia doesn't care about the international community and neither do the people in Russia because they don't get to hear the opinion of the international um, community. And that's an absolutely valid point. But Putin 
survives. There are no elections in, in Russia, and there haven't been since Putin's been there. I've told the story many times. My wife got here and uh, permanently got here in September of 16, September, October, and we went to um, watch one the first Clinton-Trump debate, and she couldn't believe that everybody was getting so uh, hyped up about it because there's no reason to get excited about politics in Russia because you don't have any effect on politics in Russia. You can go vote if you want to, but it's all. You know. Stalin, uh, he, he nailed it for his country, nailed it for our country, nailed it for any democracy. He says it doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts the votes. That's straight from the dictator's mouth. And I'm not going to get into uh, our situation with that here. So when I look at Putin's, uh, what, what appears to be his, his power base, he doesn't have a popular power base in the way that we understand it. Conversely, he doesn't have, he, the, the, the public doesn't have the kind of pressure on him that we have here uh, in, the, in the West. So he's off in his little world there, and he's managed to convince a significant number of Russians, a significant number of Russians, that um, everything's going great, and that, um, uh, you know, uh, Mother Russia is, is ascendant and glorious and all the rest of it. However, one thing that I have heard consistently from uh, Russian people that I've come to know is that there appears to be a very widespread and growing sense of dread that everybody's going to be uh, sent to Ukraine. Now, Russia has um, conscription, mandatory military service for males at uh, age 18 or whatever it is. And uh, I don't know, I think it's four years. Um, but when the entire male population of the country is in a state of shock about, my God, am I going to get sent to Ukraine? Um, that's, you know, that's that's a factor. It's what, where's the support? I mean, whatever you want to say about either Afghanistan or Iraq, and a lot of people were opposed to those conflicts. Uh, you had 9/11 in front of your eyes, right? I mean, there it was, and and there was a there was a a moral uh, motivation, moral outrage. I remember that very clearly. And, and many of you who were adults during the time, which is 20 years ago now, hard to believe, hard to believe. But nevertheless, um, there was like, okay, well, we've been hurt, so now we're going to go hurt somebody. Um, and, uh, and Russia can claim that, but they don't, they don't have the evidence of it, right? They don't have people jumping off of, you know, 100-story buildings. He is a... He's the last of the communists. Like, let's not forget, he was born in Leningrad, and he is a KGB guy, and he is old school like that. He's he's a he's right at that cusp. He's a hybrid of the of the communist era and the gangster era, right after the fall of the Soviet Union. So he's a gangster communist. He's a communist-hearted gangster dictator, and. My position at the beginning of this, which remains my position today, is that he is dependent on people who receive payouts from the, from the kleptocracy. Russia's taken a beating. Now, they are getting a lot of money for oil, and that's their whole economy. There is no Russian economy. I saw, I, I want to say the Russian economy is something like, it's, I, I had the figure, it's not even... 10%, it's, it's a 20th, I think. I think it's a 20th of, of the U.S. economy, a 20th. 
That's the superpower. Now, China, obviously, is getting pretty close to ours, and they're constantly telling us how they're going to pass us. They've got four times our population already, and I think China, I think we passed peak China, but that's a different story. So, yeah, so the, a lot of money's coming in, and apparently the Saudis are buying oil, or somebody's buying oil. So, so Putin sells oil, that's what he does. That's how, the, that's how the thing goes. If he can sell oil, then he can make the payments to his cronies, and he's probably relatively secure. But he also has to depend on on the on the um, the security services because he was head of the KGB, and uh, he has to depend on the military. And not only has his military been embarrassed and humiliated, significant numbers of top level, top top level uh, commanders have been killed. You know that survival instinct goes uh, goes up to pretty much everybody, and. I think if you're one of those people who supported this thing in the beginning, I'm talking about a high-level general now, and all of a sudden you're looking at, you know what, if I get sent over there, I'm going to have to be on the front lines because our communication's so poor. They've lost something like seven major generals or something like that. Um, and, uh, and so there you go. I, I just don't see it. He the, the Ukraine war has developed into... Uh, the worst case scenario for them, right? It's just a grind now. They don't appear to be in any danger of taking Kiev. They look like they were very close to doing it, but when they retreated from Kiev, which is hard for me not to say Kiev, it's a lifetime that change that stuff, give us some warning. And the arrival of Western weapons, especially, I mean, I just look at the, the videos of, of just the Nobody knows about the number of people that have been probably 60,000, maybe 50, 60,000 by now killed. Their, their, their navy is constantly humiliated. And, and as, as these weapons continue to come in, Ukraine not only has the ability to start pushing people back, they can start hitting people, um, hitting people in Russia. They start hitting um, targets in Russia. That's already happened. And you got to, you know, you got to go. You got you to play that game, Chicken Kiev. That's kind of what he's, you know, it's funny. I wish I'd thought of that earlier. That would be a great title for a firewall or something about the situation. Just call it Chicken Keef. Because that's what it is. That's what he did. He went in there. Yeah, U.S. 1.8 trillion. Uh, it's about, uh, the Russia, Russia, sorry, is 1.8 trillion. About a twelfth of the U.S. Uh, thanks, Dave. Um, so, for, for Peterson to say, um, you know, uh, no um, promise, no NATO membership for Ukraine. You know that that it's. I'm just speaking as a human being here. Before the Russians come in and, and start leveling your cities, that's an option, right? Okay, so let's not let's not piss off the big bear. Let's say okay, no make a commitment, a promise for no NATO membership, and so on. And even while he still crosses the border and in the Donbass and the situation looked like it did back in 2014, that's still on the table. But be honest with you, if, um, if I'm a Ukrainian and I see what has happened to my country um, every day, I'm not going to be a big booster for the idea of, well, we promise we're not going to be on the side of the West who, you know, the people who are keeping us alive now. Uh, I think... I don't know what the situation with Sweden and Finland is going to be. They say they're they're coming in. If they do come in, it's a catastrophe for Putin. I mean, it's just an absolute catastrophe. He can't get out of the the um, the Baltic. 
if 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 NATO is in um, if if Finland and uh, and Sweden become NATO countries, he's got NATO right on his border. Uh, yeah, so uh, Mobile Moto is basically saying California's got two and a half, three times the GDP of all of Russia. That's just California. Texas does too, roughly twelve, about a little more than what Russia puts out. So yeah. So where's where's how is this anything other than a catastrophe for him, right? He thought the, the the whole thing comes down to this, really. There's no question in my mind, none, that he thought that this was going to be a quick operation, and that uh, and that Ukraine would fold and and it would essentially be a, a walkover. I don't know if he believed that they'd be greeted as liberators. Some Russian soldiers thought they were going to be greeted as liberators. I have no doubt they were told that. But whether Putin believed that or not, I know he thought it was going to be a relatively quick thing. Um, and and Zerensky didn't run. He, he just didn't. He didn't take the helicopter ride. And so now Putin is looking at Western weapons decimating his armor in Ukraine. He's looking at Finland and Sweden uh, being forced into NATO. They weren't in any particularly hurry to poke uh, Russia. They didn't, you know, they weren't like banging on the door to, to, to join NATO until this invasion. It, it, it's, a, it's nothing but a catastrophe for, for him internationally. They have no moral authority whatsoever, and they never will anymore. You know, this is a, there's no question about this just being open, naked aggression, right? So the short answer to this is, uh, Furball, I think, is that, is that Putin can control, essentially control the mood inside of Russia. And that's what's going to determine whether or not he stays in power. It's not going to be what the people think. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be, um, if he can, if he can keep the military and the, and the intelligence services and the kleptocracy happy, then he'll probably stick around. And he can control what happens inside of Russia, but he can't control what happens outside of Russia and what the international response to this is. And we live in an international world. And this, is, I think, is the ultimate reason why I'm sure he's going to fail is because Putin has been, like every other dictator, isolated, told what he wants to hear. And and that's why he went into Ukraine. And I think now he's being told we don't need to. I know for a fact that's what, that's what the regime is saying. The regime is saying... Um, well, we don't we don't care what the outside world thinks. We've never cared. We're Russia. Russia's they've always been ganging up on us. They've always been they've always been uh, plotting against us. They've always been trying to to destroy us. Uh, America's trying has been trying to to westernize Ukraine uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union. They're the paranoia that's built into Russian the Russian character is almost overwhelming. Always somebody else's fault, always somebody else's fault, always somebody plotting to get them, always, 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 always. Okay, I think this idea that it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks, I think that is a KGB attitude. And I think Putin has, I know he's grown up with it, I don't think he's ever going to change his mind about that, so he's done the KGB thing. He's hunkered down in the Kremlin, and now we're just going to see a lot more killing, and if if Ukraine was able to hold, and they were, and now they're now resupply is coming in for the Ukrainians, how does Russia compete? We know their we know their equipment's garbage, and we know ours isn't. 
and all the things that we've talked about before all come in you know uh, re regularly now the bit about the food crisis and all the rest of it yeah um uh, political animal 87 says bill are you aware that there's an entirely anti-west trading block being set up china russia india africa and the middle east yes although i have to say china russia india africa and the middle east one of those countries doesn't belong there one of those entities doesn't belong there and the one that i'm surprised to see in there is india i i think that if india is doing that then but then again, we have a president who doesn't know what planet he's on, doesn't know what day of the week he did. Why, why would you Why would you side with America? We've sold out virtually every ally we've had since World War II. You know, we're not the we're not the shiny Cadillac we used to be. Not because of um, anything different about America, the American system, but because the political leadership is just so unbelievably, appallingly awful. Um, uh, I don't believe that uh, that India is going to get into um, tightly into bed with uh, China. I mean, I've said this before, <laughs> as I've said before, that I've said this before, but the Himalaya Mountains have prevented historical bloodbaths that would make the the, the Eastern Front of World War II look like a uh, like an opening overture. I mean, you've got billions of people on either side of those mountains and both sides historically have just used mass infantry china and india are not friends they're in straight competition in the um in the indian ocean uh china's trying to expand everywhere india india does not um does not india it seems to me that if i'm india and i'm bordering china and china's getting aggressively um expansionist the last thing I want to do is cripple the counterweight to China, which is the United States, right? That's the last thing I want to do. So uh, Russia and China, you, you guys can be outlaw countries uh, together all you want to. It, it, it is, again, uh, a short-term advantage. All of these short-term advantages go to uh, the cheaters, the liars, and the murderers, right? The, if you don't play by the rules, you get a short-term advantage. You get to cheat while the other guy plays fair. That's the short-term advantage. Um, the long-term advantage is, uh, goes, to the, goes to the people who play fair, the iterated um, prisoner's dilemma. Uh, real success is a, is a um, real success is based on a web of trust. And, and if you violate that web of trust in order to get short-term gains, then you lock yourself out of the long-term games. Uh, let's see, just a couple of Pakistan's about to civil war against Taliban. Afghanistan is flooding Pakistani Taliban with modern U.S. weapons. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, you know, in terms of, you, you, I'm not going to go through the whole platitudes of it being a tragedy, not because it isn't a tragedy, it is a tragedy, and doesn't get less tragic by having some guy at a microphone say what a tragedy it is. Um, but Eric Blake has got it right. I mean, the reason, the reason that this invasion happened is twofold. Number one, Biden 
came into office and immediately shut down U.S. oil production. That means that we have to be buying oil from people. Whether we buy it directly from Russia or not, we're taking oil off the market, which means that Putin's got one. He's got one lifeline. That's it. That's pumping oil. So when we shut down our oil, we are basically paying him, right? And when we're exporting oil, as we were under Donald Trump, which we have the ability to do, and we can be not only energy independent, but energy exporters, then what, we're, what are we doing? We're taking money out of his war chest. But no. So Biden comes in and kills the, kills the drilling. So Putin says, hmm, it looks like I'm going to start getting some income in the next couple months. And then, of course, you watch the Afghanistan thing and the, the guy falling down the stairs and he can't finish sentence and he's reading uh, repeat the line. And Putin says, now or never, it's, it's not a mystery why he did it. Um, I just think like, like every other threat that we've faced, they assume that the, the visible part of America is the real part of America, and it's not. America, vir virtually all of America is under the surface. The Taliban and, uh, not all Taliban so much, Al-Qaeda, in you know the mid 2000s 2005 2006 you start reading the, their intercepts from Iraq and some of them openly say we thought that these were a bunch of soft coffee drinking pansies that you know that that they're addicted to their comfort and and they're and they're morally corrupt and so on and and it turns out that the visible part of America is exactly that but they hadn't counted on these uh, you know homeland Americans coming out there because those Marines were over there in Fallujah and kicked their asses in their own backyard, just handed them their teeth in their own backyard. They, they, they didn't expect that. And so it's the same thing again and again and again, right? The, 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 that, that estimation of America is soft and, and a pushover now. So that's um, Putin. And before that, it was Al-Qaeda. And before that, it was Germany and Japan. And before that, it was Germany, and before that it was the Confederacy, and all of this stuff, all of it. These warrior cultures look at America and they think they're, they're done, they're finished, they're just decadent. And there's no question that what, at the, that the visible part of America is in fact those things. This is why I'm so worried about the military, which is why I mentioned this uh, firewall I'm working on. Uh, the Samuel B. Roberts I'm going to tell a little bit of the story of that, I'm, and I'm putting together a graphic I haven't found anywhere. I found a version of it, but it's not, it's not great. I have never, um, I'm putting together, a, a, here are the actual size of the ships involved, right, in, in the Taffy 3 battle. Uh, I'm going to have to, if I'm wrong on this, I, I will never forgive myself, but I'm virtually positive the, the name is right. So they found the Samuel B. Roberts. It's somewhat deeper than the Johnston. Same guy that found the Johnston, Texas uh, entrepreneur, found the Samuel B. Roberts. And the Samuel B. Roberts is in, is in pretty good shape uh, for a little tin boat, you know, that was smashed to pieces. And gun number one uh, is called uh, gun 51. And there's only two five-inch guns on a destroyer escort, a Butler-class destroyer escort. Forward gun is 51, aft gun is 52. Uh, when they were in that action that day, I want to show the size of the ships. And here's the American fleet. Here's all our escort. Uh, here's all our jeep carriers, our, our escort carriers. And here's our available destroyers. Here's the entire Japanese fleet. And then I'm going to fade out. Uh, virtually, I'm going to fade out everything that's not 
USS Johnston, USS Hearman, USS Hull, and USS Roberts. Those four ships went, and I'm going to fade out those things, and we have these four tiny little things up against this monstrous thing. Okay. So anyway, the reason I'm I'm doing this is is simple. There is there is a video out there which you may or may not have seen, posted by a, a female U.S. serviceman a couple of weeks ago, saying how am I, how, how why should I go out and defend America? when uh when women's rights are being uh, destroyed right in front of my eyes why should i why should i go out there and, and defend this country you know and i'm thinking to myself i'm not sure you're the kind of person we want i might as well just give it to you now Here, so here's here's the whole thesis right let's start with the samuel b roberts when that little ship went into battle he told his engineer copeland robert copeland the, the commander of the roberts said uh called down to his engineer and said hook on everything you got uh don't worry about blowing the engines or fouling the filters or anything because we're not coming out of this. When he saw the uh, the Japanese force on the horizon, he said, um, we have made contact with a powerful enemy surface fleet. We are turning to engage them. Uh, survival is not um, likely or something like that. Man your battle stations. So off he goes. And you've got these two five-inch guns. I want to say they had 300 rounds each. Copeland later said, he said, the only time I ever saw a five-inch gun cycle faster than Gun 51 that day was watching Gun 52 that day. Gun 52 had three, I want to say 300 rounds of five-inch ammunition, and it fired 299 of them. And there was a, there was a young guy, 18-year-old, I think, and I'm virtually positive his name was Carr. And he was the, uh, he was just a, 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 a NCO. And he was the uh, gun chief for the aft turret on USS um, Roberts. And now I've got video of that turret on the bottom of the ocean, deepest shipwreck ever found. So, so Carr and the Roberts are in the middle of this Japanese monstrous surface fleet. And, he, and Roberts gets the, the Johnson under the guns of a Japanese battleship. They can't, he's so close they can't depress the guns enough to hit him. And he's just pounding, 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 five-inch guns on both sides, this little toy boat, boom, 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 pounding the superstructure, knocking the, the command thing. You can't get through the armor. He bounces off the armor. He must be using spitballs against that. But if he's hitting the bridge, if he's hitting the, you know, the, 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 uh, the director station, the gun director station, he's causing real damage, and he's making them nervous. So he's just pounding away, boom, 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 boom. I forget how many rounds 51 got off. I want to say it was 280 or something like that, some, some incredible thing. They're just bam, 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 firing. So... Back in the, in the stern gun, um, the Roberts continues to get hit and take damage, and they lost electrical power. And that meant that they couldn't control the guns on the Roberts from the gun director's platform. The gun director had a pretty sophisticated optical thing. He's up on top of that, you know, that little tripod thing. And it's true for all gunships, like battleships and so on. And so that's gone. But the two turrets can fire individually, so that's what they did. So the, the gun directors in each turret are firing, boom, 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 pounding it out. So the power goes out, and, and they keep firing, because they can, but one of the things they needed electrical power for was that whenever they'd fire that 5-inch gun, a fan would kick in, and it would blow the exhaust gases out of the barrel. And when the electricity went out, that ability to vent the hot gases from the rounds stopped. So Carr keeps shoving, Carr and his gun team in Gun 52 on the Roberts keeps shoving that ammo in there, shoving that ammo in there. 
and he's down to his last shell. And just before he loads that, the gun explodes. From just explodes, it, it, it's overheated. It virtually kills it, it kills everybody in the in the turret, or or practically fatally wounds them. Guys go running back to the stern. They go running back to gun 52 on on the Samuel B. Roberts. There's nothing but red paste on the inside of the turret. One or two mortally wounded guys they're helping out. And Carr, who's the gun director, it's his turret, is standing there. And he's got a, a wound that went from his clavicle all the way down to his groin. He's just opened. He's just opened. And he is holding the last five-inch round of that gun. And when they come in to see how they can help anybody who may have survived the explosion, Carr is begging, begging these guys to help him load the gun. The gun's blown up, but Carr is begging them. So they take, the first guys on the scene take a couple of, of severely wounded people out of there, and, and they get Carr to lie down, and when they get the, the wounded guys out of there, go back in to get Carr, Carr is standing again, and Carr is still holding that last five-inch shell, and he's begging them, beg, help, help me fire this last shell. And, uh, and then he died. And you can compare that with this uh, woman who says, well, why should I go out and, and fight for a country that, that, you know, won't allow me to have abortions at eight months and, you know, 28 days. Well, one reason might be, ma'am, that you took an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States and that, that, and that the ruling that you may not have liked was without question legal and constitutional. The Supreme Court made a ruling and that ruling was a legitimate ruling. There was nothing about it. It wasn't forced. It was a legitimate ruling. And if you don't like it, and now you're saying, well, I don't know why I should fight for the country if something happened that I don't like, the democracy did something that I don't like, screw them. That's a different kind of person than Carr. Carr was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Um, and so my argument is on quality is when we have advertisement for the military that talks about my two moms and, and all we're trying to do is get people like this woman into the military because we're so short on personnel, we're not only not meeting our quotas, we are causing damage. And my, my close is basically this. I don't know how many ships we have in the Navy now. It's three, 400, I would think. And we don't have enough ships. We need more ships. But I would rather have 100 ships that are crewed by guys like Carr than 700 ships that are crewed by people like this, this thing, you know, this disgrace. Um, and so what we're doing is we're not, only, we're not only going after the people who don't belong there, we're chasing away the cars. Why would the why would the cars sign up for this military? Why? You know, it used to be Marines are a few good men. It used to be all about doing the kind of things that you would do. You used to get the kind, those people still exist, by the way. There's there's millions of them, the, the, like like this uh, like this uh, chief car. There, there's there's plenty of those people out there. But why would you join so that you could be part of this woke thing? The you know, the, the Russians, we were talking about Ukraine a second ago, the Russians lost the Moscow in um, the Black Sea. That was the largest, uh, it was the largest military vessel to sink since the General Belgrano sank in the, in the Falkland Islands War in uh, 1982. But it wasn't 
the big it wasn't the um, biggest ship to be lost since then. The biggest ship to be lost since the Belgrano was the USS Bonhomme Richard. Bonhomme Richard was a amphibious assault craft, which normally would take helicopters and Harriers and uh, Osprey. Now could be carrying lightnings, but that ship was destroyed. You know what destroyed it? One, one woke sailor set a fire in that ship, and it burned to the burned to the keel. It's gone. One guy took out a ship. One guy. And this was a person who had discipline problems because they were so left wing. Why are we Why are we going after these people? Why? Wouldn't you rather look? I understand the Navy shorthanded. I do. I've had the honor and the privilege of being on board a, a, a Spruance, a, a, a Arleigh Burke class destroyers on board USS Spruance for an afternoon. And I know that they're short of people and I know that they're short of ships. And I know that the United States doesn't have as many ships as we need in the Navy. But I swear to God, I would rather have half the ships or a quarter of the ships that we have now and, and be able to count on the people on board. So if it turns out that we cannot get enough quality people into the military, we better start walking back the total number of our assets because you can have assets, but if you fill them with people who are who are deciding, well, I may not be, not, not only may I not fight for this country anymore, I may fight for the other side because there was a ruling that I didn't like. If I was the Secretary of Defense, that would be my immediate, that would be my immediate action, immediate action. I would look at I would look at anybody who had any sense of anti-American stuff on uh, on uh, on social media, and and I'm not talking about political disagreement, Democrats, Republicans, whatever. But I'm talking about anti-American stuff, out uh, dishonorable discharge. And if it turns out that we don't have enough people to crew the total number of uh, just using the Navy as an example, it applies to the other forces as well. If we don't have enough quality people to crew 300, 400 ships, then let's then let's crew 200 ships. I understand we're short already, but if you if you destroy the the personnel, you've destroyed the navy. What's the point of having a ship that doesn't that doesn't fight? And another point I, I try to make in this is is also very uh, germane. I think during the the first months of COVID, it was in in spring or early summer of 2024. Not the smallest ship in the navy, like the Samuel B. Roberts, whose captain said, "We are going to engage enemy surface fleet. Survival is not to be expected. Battle stations, right?" He's committing his entire crew to the bottom of the ocean, himself included, by the way, I might point out. So the smallest ship in the Navy, with guys like Carr on board, go after this Japanese surface ship. And then in, in 2020, we see the largest ship in the Navy, larger by far than the largest ship that existed in World War II, was the USS Theodore Roosevelt, Nimitz-class carrier. And the captain is saying, we're going to have to put into port, we, we, you know, it's, it's an emergency. We have several of our soldiers are sick with COVID. Several of our sailors are sick with COVID. What? What? Yes, he, he publicly said, we need, we, we got to come back. We need to, we need to get to port because we've got some six sailors. And he had the audacity to say safety is our, is our primary concern in the Navy. He had the audacity to say that this is a, this is not a political uh, officer. This is the captain. This is the captain of the Roosevelt said that safety is our first concern. What business are you in, man? What business are you in? Safety is our first concern. The flight deck of an aircraft carrier is the most dangerous physical environment on the face of the planet. 
You know how you could make the flight deck safer? You could shut down air operations. That's how you could make the flight deck safer. What a ridiculous, pathetic thing to say. And, 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 my personal feeling at the time was, okay, so you've got an outbreak of infection on board your ship now. You've got sailors who are sick. I don't know if any of them died, by the way. I know that the fatality rate for COVID for 28-year-olds who are relatively healthy, healthy enough to get in the military, I think their survival rate is only 99.999%. The, 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 the national average is 99.98%. And that includes sick old people. So I'm saying to myself, okay, well, guess what, Captain? You have just been presented with a top quality exercise in, in biological warfare containment mechanisms. What if they drop a bioweapon on your aircraft carrier? What are you going to do? Here's your chance. And the same exact thing applied to, to the Bonhomme Richard. I remember while it was burning, I'm saying, what's going on? Yeah, the Bonhomme Richard's burning. Okay, well, how's the crew doing in terms of putting out the fires? I was on board the Spruance. Every single person on the Spruance was 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 trained to put out fires. That, that was the the thing. I that was my takeaway, because I talked to the executive officer of the Spruance, and he said, "Yeah, you know, we've seen the we've been on board uh, some of the Chinese uh, destroyers, and we've had some of their guys on board ours. And it's funny how so many of them just happen to wander off the tour and just start looking in secret areas. It's funny how how accidents happen like that with the Chinese. But basically." He said, look, they can't get it. We learned this in World War II. We learned it the hard way. We paid for this in thousands and thousands of lives. Young men burned to death, he, he said, or drowned, or torn to pieces, like Carr. And what he said was, you cannot count on damage control teams because your damage control team could be taken out in the first shot, or maybe the fire is preventing the damage control team from getting where they need to be. Everybody on the ship has to be a damage control specialist. Everybody trains. Everybody trains for putting out fires. And I did meet the damage control officer on that ship as a uh, probably 25-year-old lieutenant female who was probably five feet tall, weighed 100 pounds soaking wet, and I had 100% confidence in her ability to put out a fire on board the USS Spruance. That woman took that job seriously. And so when, the, when, when one sailor burns down, when one sailor can destroy a, 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 a flat top, it's the size of an Essex-class um, a carrier in World War II essentially sank the equivalent of the Hornet by himself. I'm saying to myself, while this thing is burning, well, what, how's the crew doing in terms of firing, fighting the fire? Well, the crew's not fighting the fire. What do you mean the crew's not fighting the fire? No, they're on the dock. What? Yeah, they're off the ship. Yeah, we're waiting for the fire department to come from San Diego. We're waiting for the specialists. Let me know if any of this sounds familiar, by the way, those of you living in Texas in the Valdi area. Let me know if this sounds familiar to you. We're going to take the people who live on the ship, we're going to take them out of there, and we're going to make sure that they don't get a chance to save their ship. I wonder how many of those guys really were feeling the same way as the Uvalde parents. Like, for God's sake, for God's sake, let me go in there. This is, this is a training opportunity, for God's sake, you know? It's a training opportunity. Well, if we if we'd let the sailors do that, you know, and got in to fight the fires, uh, there's a good chance many of them would have died. I said, yes, that's right. That's exactly correct. Yes, no question about it. I have no doubt at all. You would have lost sailors. You would have saved the ship. Why did they sign up? Right? Why did they sign up? When you can't volunteer, Terry and Jane says, when are you going to make the movie? on the Battle of Leyte Gulf, as soon as I can get this animation thing up, it's over. It's done. That's the second thing I'm going to do. But what do you say? We've just lost the biggest military, well, certainly the biggest, we've lost the biggest ship since World War II. Really? What got it? Did, did she take 15 Soviet torpedoes? Nope. Was it overwhelmed by two, 300 kamikaze airplanes and five or six of them got through? No. Was it 
was it exposed to you know 18 inch guns from from enemy battleships nope nope it was a guy with an attitude one guy with an attitude wearing the US Navy uniform and these are the people we're going after these are people we're trying to recruit now with our with our little cartoons about about the Patriot uh, uh, battery operator who has two moms who go out and protest you know that's that's who we're going for yeah Loyola I don't know I can never get that right uh, AOC says, don't give up the ship. Don't give up the ship. Don't give up the ship. <sighs> well, they gave up the ship. So that's what that's about. All right, moving on. Um, James uh, Vorderbruggen. Vor James Vorderbruggen. I hope that's right, James. Uh, JG27AD here. Okay. Um, with the deepfake technology and all the new graphics, do you think that the real historical record is in jeopardy? Will people in the future see General Abe Lincoln leading the way at Normandy? Also, can we now make new John Wayne movies? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. We have gotten to the point, we've not gotten to the point yet where deepfake technology could pass any serious scrutiny. In other words, if somebody provided a videotape of Donald Trump waving a communist flag, you know, and fist in the air wearing a Che Guevara uh, T-shirt, we can tell that's a fake. I mean, even if it's the best possible fake, we can tell that essentially the pixels are glued on top of it. So forensically, you can tell. But we're already at the point when it's certainly good enough to fool virtually everybody. And, and, and I've got a very highly trained eye for this. And... Um, and I'm having a hard time telling it apart. Let me stop for one second. Mobile Moto put in something on the last one. U.S. Navy announced punishments on Friday to more than 20 sailors for their connection to the fire on board the USS Bonhomme Richard that destroyed the warship, injured more than 60 military and civilian firefighters, and took four days to extinguish at a San Diego naval base in July 2020. Okay, what are the punishments? The punishments against the sailors are separate from criminal proceedings against Navy seaman apprentice Ryan Sawyer Mays, that's the guy I'm talking about, who was charged with arson in the disaster. He faces a hearing on August 17th with his trial expected to run September 19th through September 20th. And he needs to go, he needs to hang. Uh, quote from a bit of, yeah, okay, so. What are the other 20 sailors? I guarantee you it's dereliction of duty. Remember, we had three collisions? Didn't we have th three surface vessel collisions in a, in a 17 18 month period or something three and what you find is that is that the officers on the watch are are so incompetent they they simply you know we got a warship sailing through a relatively tight channel all right who's the duty officer well it's lieutenant commander this all right well, Lieutenant Commander, this runs a ship into uh, another ship. And I think in two of these cases, they were female officers. I'm not saying that female officers can't do it. What I'm saying is if you are going after this whole diversity thing, if that's where your recruiting threat is, these are the people you're going to get. And if these are the people you're going to get, then this is the result you're going to get. Somebody said it earlier. It's, it's the most obvious point of all. What's, there is no advantage to having a Navy that can't fight. So who's behind this? Who's behind this? Um, Eric says, how many 
how much of our lack of good servicemen and women is due to the pullout of Afghanistan. Yes, that's exactly right. That didn't help. But look at the advertisements. Just just look at the ads. What are they trying to attract with this with those with that cartoon army ad? And so who are they trying to get? They're trying to get people like this this young woman. Why? That's worse than nobody. Worse, much worse than nobody. It's much worse to have somebody who you can't depend on than nobody, because if there's nobody there, you know you can't depend on them. If somebody, if, if that woman had said anything like that and I'd been involved with her in any way, I would say either she leaves or I do, because I can't trust this person now. I can no longer trust this person to do their job. I don't know whether they're going to do their job or whether they're going to decide they don't want to do their job because they're, they're, they're having a hissy fit about, about something that happened. Out, out, goodbye, goodbye, gone. Nope, nope. So who benefits from this? China benefits, Russia benefits, all of our all of the people who who are military enemies of the United States have a big big stake in weakening this thing from the inside because there's no way they'll ever catch it from the outside. Even China could build all the hell they want to. We've been spending 600 billion dollars a year for 50 years. Right? So why don't we recruit the cars? I'd rather have one car than 10 of those women or 20 or 100. In fact, I'd rather have nobody than her. Why don't we go after the cars? Why don't we why don't we put out advertisements to get people like car? People that are going to people that are going to service that gun and are going to hold the last shell as they stand there dying trying to do their job and and to, and to fight their ship. Why don't we get those people? What's the what's the what's the alternative? And Roy Hamill puts put his sum on it. 10% for the big guy. Exactly. Exactly. Coconut ED5 says an evil adversary will burn his own nation to the ground to rule over the ashes. And now we're really on to it, right? Isn't this essentially what it is? I mean, this woman's attitude, I don't agree with this, so I'm going to burn it down. Isn't that what the sailor did, the guy who actually started the fire? I don't like this, so I'm going to burn it down. Isn't that I would rather rule over the ashes? Isn't that it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven? Isn't that the definition of evil? Isn't that what it is? Isn't that the... The story of the fall of Satan, isn't that all about pride and treason? Going to war with the people that empowered you? Isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that, isn't that the essence of what evil is? Uh, Mobile, Mondo's, uh, Mobile Moto's been putting things out there. Uh, additionally, the three most senior officers of the ship, Captain Gregory Scott Thorman, the former commanding officer, Captain Michael Ray, former executive officer, Jose Hernandez, the former command master chief, the chief's the ship's senior most enlisted sailor and a top advisor to the commanding officer, were issued letters of reprimand with Captain Thorman and Captain Ray also forfeiting pay. Okay, so that is a slack ship. And then the final thing, or at least another one from Mobile Moto, the average cost of a WASP-class landing helicopter dock, LHD, was estimated to be $750 million in 1989. It's 1.4 billion today, and then he's talking about uh, all of this stuff. It was, it was as, it, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't uh, worthwhile. So we lost, so we lost a carrier. We lost a carrier to a guy with an attitude. We lost a carrier to a social justice warrior, to some tattooed, pink-haired, pierced malcontent, and so. The attitude is, let's go get more of those people. That's that's intentional. That's not an accident. We all know it. We all know it. 
I think we are going to have a, a, a well, we're going to know in November. But I'll tell you this, if we have the kind of sweep that I think we're going to have in November and we don't immediately get on voting integrity and, and the integrity of the military and the integrity of our southern border, that's it. You know, let's start pumping some oil. Let's get this inflation under control. Let's not put any more money into the system. Let's take some money out of the system if we can. We have to go through a recession to, to, to reduce the money supply. That's better in the long term than, than, um, than this inflation is. It's not a mystery. It's not a mystery. Since it's not a mystery how to fix it, that means it's not a mystery how to screw it up, which means it's being screwed up on purpose. And people who are unwilling to accept that are not just naive at this point. They're, they're, they're willfully blind. They're, they're, they're intentionally closing their eyes to, to this fact. Right? There, is no, there is no reasonable explanation for it other than this. Um, and, and we all know this isn't going to happen. But if it turned out that that, sold, that the sailor is guilty of treason, there's no question about it. None. If he if he is found guilty, right? If he is if a court finds him guilty based on the evidence, I'm not not saying on allegations. If he's found guilty based on evidence, what's he going to get? Ten years, maybe. If you hung the guy, people start taking this job seriously. If you hung the guy, then people like what's her name may start rethinking whether or not she wants to be in the military or not. I don't want to have the kind of military that just summarily executes people for screwing up. But this is not that. Um, so, anyway, that's that. Uh, so, uh, uh, anyway, um, James, uh, right now, the deep fake technology is at the point where you will, uh, I can already show you anything I want to show you, on uh, anything. The downside is you can have political speeches, especially with the, um, yeah, Chelsea Manning got a sex change operation, which I paid for, and then got out early, and has undoubtedly got a book deal or, or whatever. Okay. All right. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, but back to your uh, deep fake audio thing. I, by the way, I tried the uh, audio deep fake between last show and this show. Uh... Yeah, way to go, AOC. You like fire their sailor sentence awarded is burned to death. Absolutely. Um, anyway, uh, I tried the voice altering software, Altered, and I broke it. Uh, I'd seen numbers of demos where people start talking and they and they, they sound like Morgan Freeman, perfect. So I took a little bit of the back and forth D words and I uploaded it to it and I put all the different voices on it. I played with it everything. And now I've got Martin, I've got Martin Freeman sounding like this. I sent them some feedback today. It's possible that I did something wrong, but the website was just very, 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 very opaque, very difficult to figure out. Um, but you know, that voice modification is still a possibility. I tried it and, uh, and it's doing something remarkably well, but I couldn't get it to do what other people were getting it to do, and I sent them a feedback notice about that today. They gave me free access for a week, and then they said, if you want another week, uh, just um, give us some feedback. So I gave them some detailed feedback. Um, now, the upside of this is, yes, the upside of this is you can you can bring 
the past back to life. Um, when we do the Taffy Three thing, and we are going to do it by God, I can, I can get not a guy who looks like Ernest Evans. I can get a guy who I can get a, a virtual guy who is indistinguishable from Ernest Evans. Although, as I think I mentioned before, I don't think there's more than two pictures of him, two or three. I think there's only two close-ups of the guy. Um, and so, all right, so the captain's going to look like the captain, and we can make everybody look like they actually looked. I think they deserve that, personally. I think I think Bob Copeland, the skipper of the Sammy B, I think when they tell that story, we ought to have some... If, 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 we're, if it's capable... If we have the capability of making a character look exactly like Bob Copeland did when he was uh, in Lady Gulf in uh, October 26th of 1944, then... Yes, I, I think that's a sign of respect. Uh, the only thing, the only hesitation I have, and it just flew into my head, is, you know, Copeland was the captain, and he's the captain. His is the name that we remember, but he had a whole crew of people, and they, many of them died, and we can't make all of the sailors look the way they do. So, on some level, that's about my only objection to it, but. Look, it was Copeland who, who gave the order, and it was Johnston. It was Ernest Evans on the Johnston who gave the order. And um, and now I have a video picture of uh, of Gun 51 and 52 on the Samuel B. Roberts' deepest wreck ever. Uh, Marisha Dark says, Bill, on a related note, woke uh, scolds are calling for archaeologists to stop labeling the sex of ancient bones because they can't tell how the person identified in life thus conflating sex and gender, breaking their own made-up rules. Yeah, that's right. You know why the real reason why they're doing that? You know, the main, the, the actual motivation for them saying, you, you, we don't want you saying we found a male body or a female body. The real reason that they're, that they're fighting that is because you can detect whether a person was male or female from bones that are 200,000 years old. That's why they don't want it. In other words, that fundamental difference is so deep. It's so deep that it survives centuries, millennia. That's why they don't like it. What's left of these people? A couple of teeth and, and a fraction of a hip bone. Yeah, it was a woman. You can tell just from that? Yeah. That's what they can't stand. Um, so, you know, all, look, everything they believe is, is untrue. And that's why they're going to lose. That's why they're losing now. They're in full retreat all across the board. I, I really honestly, not that they haven't done damage, they're in full retreat in the same way that a bunch of raiders come down from the hills, burn the village, and then start riding off with their horses, right? But they are finished. They're going to do more damage on the way out, and when it becomes clear to them they didn't succeed, they're going to burn everything around them because that's how these people are. It's like that woman there. Well, if I don't get what I want, then then what? Then why should I uh, do my job that I swore an oath to do? Right? They're gonna when it's when it's clear to them, they're going to burn everything. And we will learn whether or not uh, we have learned our lesson by by how much stuff we let them burn down. Uh, anyway. Uh, Henry Lumley. Hey, Henry. Thanks again for doing the work there. He's an unvaccinated second-class citizen, according to Henry Lumley, and I recently agree. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, additional channel content. Hey, Bill, have you and the guys ever considered adding a book review and discussion episode on your schedule? 
I think Scott reads the most books out of the four, including Zoe on the list. Can we get at Scott Ott solo or with a guest to run monthly or bi-weekly 30-minute book discussion episodes? It would add more content. Also, book discussions and reviews are an evergreen source of content, although I think Scott may have to open up his reading selection up to additional genres. Uh, I told Scott when he first came on that I would completely support any content he wanted to do, and I've made that offer repeatedly. Uh, so, uh, he usually watches these. We'll see what he says. Uh, Henry Lumley again. Uh, California may not be hell, but you can see it from there. Yeah, it's, it's clearly visible. Um, hey, Bill, I did not know if you saw the story from the Daily Wire. I wanted to get your take on it and say that California is pure evil. Please leave. Long story short, a school district in California was considering opening a Planned Parenthood on the grounds of a high school, but it got protested hard by local parents, so I assume that they will just vote secretly and open it anyways. But damn, that is despicable. Here's an excerpt from the article. By the way, quote, prescription of pharmaceuticals related to reproductive health, uh, I think that's the unquote, is Planned Parenthood code for puberty blockers and transitioning related hormones. The depravity knows no bounds. And then there's a link from the article, which I don't think I'm going to read. Look, as with all other catastrophes, there is a tail to things, right? There is in the world that we live in here in our four-dimensional world and thermodynamic uh, world, there is cause and effect. There is an arrow of time. Time flows one way. That means that things happen and then things happen as a result of that and the, and the effects don't preclude the causes. There's the cause and then the effect. That's a universal rule and it doesn't change no matter what your politics are. The cause has been in the last two or three years, an exponential hysterical growth in this whole trans, uh, uh, trans movement, right? All of it. And now all of the social pressure, including the pressure from their parents in many cases, is on children to become uh, transgender because it's chic. It's like, it's like having, a, it's like having a, a kind of a, you know, any other brand of track shoes or handbags or whatever. It's chic. Why would you want to have a boring boy who decides to be a boy when you can be a very, very special, special, special supporting parent who, who has a boy who wants to be a girl? So that's the cause. The effect is that we are now starting to commit these uh, acts on, on underage children. And then what comes after this is we are already starting to see just the beginning of the bell curve, right? Just the beginning, but it's starting to, it's starting to show up on the radar. And the, that particular bell curve is the bell curve of people whose lives were ruined, ruined by this, and who are angry at the people who not only let it happen, but essentially encouraged them to happen. This thing has not been going on for a long time. So there are large numbers of people who are either on puberty blockers now or talking about transitioning now or so on. And the consequences of that decision haven't shown up yet, but some of them have. Some of them have. And, and that's going to grow every day. And you're going to see more and more and more and more and more people testifying that, that this was, you can't even call it a bad decision. This was, this was the, the ruin of their lives. So like everything else, we are not going to do anything about this until the until the damage exceeds the, the virtue signaling 
on the part of the left. They really are mentally ill, and I'd be more than willing to back that up with actual science. Absolutely more than willing to back it up. I would be, as a representative of the conservative movement, I would be more than happy to have a 48-hour psychiatric exam and compare me to anybody on the left and and have a, just have a, you can do it from somebody in another country, just have a 48-hour psycholo psychological, in-depth psychological workup, and I'm more than happy to, to go up against any, any liberal pundit, and I have no doubt whatsoever that I'd be considered far saner than they are, and I'm kind of nuts to begin with compared to the rest of my uh, tribe. Um, so, they're just mentally ill. And it's the mentally ill leading the mentally ill into mental illness. Uh, I think it was during the um, the right angle shoots where, I don't remember if it was Steve or Scott, I think it was Steve who said that basically what we're seeing now is, is um, neurotic liberals performing political theater for the benefit of other neurotic liberals. That's pretty much exactly it. Crazy people are doing crazy things in order to appeal to other crazy people. Uh, AOC pretending to be handcuffed is a crazy person doing something crazy to appeal to other crazy people. They don't realize, they have no conception of the fact that, that people look at this and, and don't cheer. People look at this and just say, this person's ill. They're going to find out, though. They're going to find out. Um, Dave Wilson. Hey, Bill, if you could possibly be persuaded to talk about space. Oh, for God's sake. How many times do I have to carry this burden? Was the James, worth telescope, James Webb telescope worth it? And here's another light question. You've given a blank sheet of paper. Oh, let me get to that next. Oh, no, same, same question. So you're given a, a blank sheet of paper, uh, several actually, you get to design the next orbital telescope. Do you make it bigger, smaller, one launch or several Falcon missions and assembly in space? It's possible that the James Webb telescope has already paid for itself just a few months into its operational lifetime. I don't know what its operational lifetime is. If history is any guide, the actual operational lifetime will be several times the minimum expected operational lifetime. I don't remember what the Spirit and Opportunity rovers were essentially guaranteed for, but I think it was three months. They went on for what, 15 years or something. Voyagers still sending back the beeps. Um, so we did a, uh, a right angle on first light, the first images released from the James Webb Space Telescope, and the resolution on those seemed to be so much greater than what Hubble had done that it, it, it's entirely possible that it's already paid for itself. It's a little interesting side note here. I saw comparison pictures of, um, I might have one here, hang on, hang on. Uh, I know I pulled them. I don't know if I deleted them. Hang on a second, because it's actually kind of cool. I'll just check. Hang on. If it's it's worth it, if I can find it. Um, yep. I think. Hmm. All right, that's not it. Um, let me look for it because it's 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 just an interesting, fun little astronomical point. Hang on a second.
it's a comparison of photos taken of the, uh, of the same area um, by the web and the Hubble. And it's not just showing the increased uh, resolution of the web. It shows something much more interesting that nobody's talking about. Uh, I have to find the picture first. Okay. All right. So uh, here is a composite uh, picture of the um, Hubble on the left and the web on the right. So you can immediately see the enormous increase in resolution, the detail of the, of the uh, web on the right versus the Hubble on the left. But there's a, there's a more interesting story here. If you look at the image on the right, you see far more stars than you do on the left. It's not a question of how sharp they are. It's a question of the number. Why is that? Well, some small part of it is the web mirror is larger than the Hubble mirror. It's able to take in more light, so it's able to see fainter things. But that's not why there's so many more stars on the right side of this picture than there are on the left. The reason that that discrepancy exists is because the James Webb telescope is a near-infrared telescope. So what you're seeing here is remarkable. The reason there are more stars on the right than on the left is because the James Webb telescope is looking into the infrared. And most of the stars in the galaxy, I want to say in excess of 90% of them, are red dwarf stars. We completely forget about this. We look out at the night sky and we see you know, Arcturus and Vega and all of these other stars. and Everything's bright and blue and so on. And so these are the stars that are bright enough to be seen over interstellar dis distances. But most of the stars in the galaxy are invisibly dim. And the web is, uh, is able to see those. So um, that's, uh, that's really remarkable. It's able to see things that, that, that this is how the universe really looks. It, you know, it really does. It, it really looks like the one on the right. That's how the galaxy is populated. All these billions of, of tiny, dim, red dwarf stars that last a long, long time. Our, our sun's probably good for eight or nine billion years. These things are good for 50, 100 billion years. And some stars that are bigger, like Sirius and hotter blue stars, are much shorter lifespan, measured in millions of years. Um, but yes, in my opinion, this has already paid for itself. Just accomplishing it, I think, has already paid for itself. Now, to get to the second half of the question, which is what I would, what would I do if I had a um, uh, blank piece of paper? Uh, find my uh, bill. Uh -huh. um, and I get to design the next orbital telescope. What do I do? Well, here's the thing about telescopes. It all comes down to aperture. It's that simple. There. There, it's that simple. I, uh, when I was really deep into astronomy on a daily basis at the, in the planetarium days, I used to laugh at, uh, and I still do kind of wince at it. Um, I look at um, at them trying to sell telescopes, and your little you know refractor refractor telescope uses lenses, reflector telescopes use mirrors, and they'll you'll see an ad for a refractor telescope, and it'll say 600 power, and it's like. 
merely 600 power. I have no doubt I could get it to 60,000 power if I wanted to, and I wouldn't see anything because magnification is predicated on blowing up an image, and that image is predicated on how wide is the bucket, how much light are you taking in. So magnification is useless. It doesn't mean anything. What matters is aperture. How big is your mirror? How big is your lens? The reason we use mirrors instead of lenses now, by the way, the reason we use reflecting telescopes instead of reflecting, refracting telescopes is you can support a mirror from behind. Uh, on Earth, the Yerkes refractor, which is which looks like one of those intercontinental cannons, unbelievably long. Yerkes, I can't believe I remember that. The Yerkes ref refractor is the largest lens-based refracting telescope on the planet. And if you get any bigger than that, the lens distorts under its own weight. You can't support a lens because light has to go through it. But with a mirror, you can mount it on something and make it as big as you want. I don't think, well, first of all, they had to package, the James Webb telescope mirrors are assembled in pieces. They're, they're hexagonal and they fold up. And the reason they have to fold up is because you've got a very narrow diameter on the launch vehicle, which was a Ariane, I guess it was a, a European vehicle. When a Starship becomes operational, not if, when it becomes operational, it's much, much wider. That means you can not only put more weight on it, you can put bigger things into it, right? You don't have to fit it through this cocktail strip. So I would put a big mirror up there, but to be perfectly honest with you, if I had the blank piece of paper, I would build an observatory on the far side of the moon. Uh, not on the dark side of the moon, because there is no dark side of the moon. There's only a far side of the moon. Uh, but that's where I would put it. Um, because if you put it uh, on the dark side, <laughs> if you put it on the far side of the moon, um, you can build it as big as you want to. And you can service it. And you have all the benefits of being on the ground and none of the disadvantages. The advantages of being on the ground are, as I said, you can build it big, you can fix it, you can service it, you can maintain it, do all those things. Just walk up to it and fix it. But the disadvantage of Earth-based telescopes is we have to look through the atmosphere, and that is fatal. And we're just looking through this constantly. It's like trying to look through water. Um, so far side of the moon is the way to go. That doesn't mean it will be dark all the time, but it does mean that since uh, there's no air to refract the, the light, as long as you're not pointing the telescope at the sun, which is a bad idea, by the way, um, you get, you get to observe day and night. The sky's black out there. At, so yeah, crank it up. The reason sky is black, of course, is that when you see pictures from the surface of the moon, the surface of the moon, you, you have to expose, you either have to expose for the surface of the moon or expose for the stars. And since you've got guys on the surface of the moon, you want to see the guys. If you want to see the stars on the Apollo missions, you essentially have a white mat, which is the outline of everybody doing everything on the thing because it's that badly overexposed. Um, yeah, I would go. Uh, I would go the. I would go on the far side of the moon. Uh, and I would build something that pivot. I was almost going to say, you know, you can. Um, uh, you could use a crater as kind of a bowl, the way they did with Arecibo, but it, an optical telescope. They, they were able to steer that somewhat by moving the receiver. But I wouldn't want to try that with an optical telescope. I'd just mount a big one up there, and that's what I would do. 
All right, here we go. Martin Archer, uh, not a question, Bill, but the excellent YouTube channel History Buffs completely destroys the idea that Apocalypto is historically accurate. Okay, well, um, if you're saying that they didn't commit human sacrifices, uh, I'm going to have to have more evidence than a YouTube channel. There's uh, there's YouTube channels out there for everything. That I'll, I'll if I get the time, I'll, I'll go and listen to the argument, and like everything else, I'll weigh how uh, I'll weigh how persuasive the evidence is. But uh, I'm not persuaded by the fact that there's a YouTube channel uh, saying something because there's a YouTube channel out there saying everything. Uh, Martin Archer again. Well, there's three. Uh, second one, John Voigt worked with James Garner, Robert Ryan, and Jason Robards on The Hour of the Gun in 1967. Did he ever have anything to say about working with them or any other famous actors like Dustin Hoffman in Midnight Cowboy? Uh, all I ever heard from um, John about that was uh, was his, his very, very first um, experience in Hollywood. John uh, said that when he he did uh, Midnight Cowboy. That's the first film he did. It was a breakout role, and it was just—you didn't just arrive in the business; you arrived at the top of the business. So, uh, Midnight Cowboy is in the mid '60s, and you've got super libs like Dustin Hoffman and so on. And what John said was he was basically an all-American kid. And when John appeared on the Hollywood scene, he said everybody came after him. All the leftists came after him. I think he mentioned Tom Hayden specifically, uh, and and um, and Jane Fonda. They really, really wanted to recruit him because he was the all-American boy. He was he was perfect. That's, that's what they wanted, and that's when he realized real early that this town was not uh, what it used to be. Um, I'm trying to think if he's ever made a a, a comment about other actors and I don't think he had uh, it's been a real honor of mine to be able to talk to John and and, um, and Powers Booth and uh, talk to John Malkovich face to face for half an hour and that was fun um, uh, Eric Blake says apparently Hoffman's gotten more conservative as the years go on. Everybody gets more conservative as the years go on because life has more time to beat the stupid out of you. Also, uh, we're witnessing in record numbers Ronald Reagan's famous line about, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party uh, left me. Yeah, I was very sad to hear that Powers Booth had passed away uh, and surprised because when I saw him, he was solid. You know, he didn't look frail at all. Um, but... Uh, John is a, he's a real, he's the real deal. When I first met Jeremy Boring at one of these meetings, the second time I met Jeremy Boring, we were at his house to talk about making a movie about this new Barack Obama guy. And there were four or five of us there, and including John Voight. And we were discussing what we were going to do sitting around in this um, living room. And... <laughs> And John says, uh, who's hungry? And we all kind of were. And we thought we'd maybe order up for pizza or something. He says, I'm going to go out and get some sandwiches. I'll be back in a minute. And so he gets out and goes get sandwiches. And the door closes behind him. And we're looking at each other. It's like, did, did John Voigt just go out to get us sandwiches? Is that what just happened? Did I, did I miss something here? We're all like, 
Really? He, he's that kind of guy. He's just a great, great, great man. He's a good man. And um, he was on Shatner's Raw Nerve. And I edited the first four episodes of that show. This is right as I was leaving. Sunday Morning Shootout was produced by the same company, Scott Sternberg Productions. At least the original episodes were. And I was the editor on the John Voigt show. And I called John and said, or I emailed him and said, I'm, I'm the one who's cutting the show of yours here. And because John went off on a, you know, went off on, Shatner was goading him. And John went off on patriotism and stuff. And I said, and I, and I really just want you to know, John, I've been treating you really fairly. Uh, I mean, I'm not cutting, uh, I'm not cutting you to make you look good. I'm just not cutting you to make you look bad. Oh, thanks, Billy. That's a big relief. And then they took the show away and they had somebody else re-edit it. Uh, and uh, what I remember of it, it was 2008, I want to say. They basically cut John's segment up to make him look less effective. And we come back to my ongoing principle. If you have to cheat, then you're probably on the wrong side. If you have to pretend like you're in handcuffs, you're on the wrong side. Uh, there we go. Uh, Martin Archer again. Uh, Martin Archer again. Uh, and that's it for this. So let me do one more Martin Archer thing here. All right, this, let's do this one. Um, with your plans to make a sci-fi series called The Colonies, I'm surprised you never seem to reference classic Western movies, one of my favorite genres which portray the conquest of the new frontier and all the challenges that entailed. Before I go any further, of the five storylines I have, the one that is by far the most developed in my head is the Homesteader storyline, by far. Um, rich source of inspiration would be any of these classics, Shane, Stagecoach, Red River, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Dodge City, Bend to the River, Ride the High Country, Winchester 73, The Naked Spur, The Oxbow Incident, and too many others to mention. Regardless of the big stars who help make these classics, such as James Stewart, John Wayne, Gregory Peck, etc., the stories tackle all the moral and psychological issues that you've talked about and that the colonies need to take in in order to deliver a conservative message in entertainment form. I'd venture to suggest that the Western movie genre is by far the most conservative-friendly, and with recent and current sci-fi being dominated by leftist utopian and dystopian views of the future, remakes of these classic Western morality tales would redress the imbalances watch westerns for script inspiration uh, yes well I've already watched them and so they're kind of built into the cake mix at this point um, those are the values that that I grew up with and those are the the values that I'm, I have and that I want to put in there um, the reason I think that the uh, homesteader storyline I've got five I've got five storylines I've got a political founder storyline I've got a Navy fledgling Navy storyline. I've got the homesteader storyline. I've got the exploration storyline, and I've got the um, merchant ship free trader storyline. And the one that keeps constantly coming to me is the homesteader one because that's the one I think it's most familiar to me from Western movies. Um, there's an image that I certainly plan to put not only in the in the first episode, but I think this image needs to be on the tease for the fundraiser. And that is an image of a series of 
rovers, six-wheeled advanced vehicles, a line of them just heading out across this alien planet. It's, um, it's a wagon train, That's, and they live in these things. And the, the model that I had commissioned for the rover for this is called the Conestoga. Um, uh, I have seen Interstellar, and, and I had real mixed feelings about Interstellar. Some of it was really good, and some of it was the stupidest thing I ever saw. We're going to launch this thing from our library, what we wall retreats or something, and there's the rocket going to take off from the middle of this library. I don't think you really fully understand what and why. Anyway, um, so so the independence aspect of it is is the part that I really um, got. Uh, a good a good thumb on and and the the lead character in that the father the father and the mother uh, and the, the two kids I've got, I've got them very very clear in my head um, I I know what I want them to look like I know what I want them to sound like I know what I want them to say um, I like the fact that the father is kind of a um, it's kind of a rough-edged he's a he's a hydraulics engineer He's decided that they can make a living out on the frontier by him drilling wells, finding water. And he's just been doing that on Earth. He's been basically a plumber at a factory, running high-pressure water systems or oil systems or whatever. So he's kind of a rough-edged guy. And I, I think I mentioned last time um, I needed to find what his wife did. And I thought, well, maybe I'll make her a scientist. Maybe I'll make her this. I'll make her a, a music instructor. And, and I like that very much because that's, to me, what the the homestead part of the West is. Um, the, uh, the, the, the hard work and the dangerous work in order to make a um, house was basically done by the men and, and the women made it into a home. You know, they, and if you look at all of the science fiction out there, nobody lives in these places. Everything's dark. Everything's metal. Everything's everything's mass-produced. Okay, why is there no art on the walls? Why is there why are there no flowers or, or plants here? Why are there no decorations of any kind? Are there any females in this future at all, or are they all tough, you know, mining types now? I don't think you have to be a tough mining type to not want to want to have instead of like four. That's a joke I'm thinking about doing, by the way. Uh, I, I mentioned many, many episodes ago that one of the things I wanted to do was have this naval commander walk into one of these dark metal dripping environments. That's the future. Ridley Scott invented the visual language of the future. Alien and, and Blade Runner. We know what the cities are going to look like because of Ridley Scott. We know what the, um, what the uh, common people are going to look like. Alien and Aliens. We know Hadley's Reach. That's the, that's the Hadley's Hope, brother. That's the um, that's the colony of the future. Mass produced makes sense, to, but but nobody lives there. I think on the on the extended version, you see there's like a sign that says bar. I thought oh, that's reasonably believable. Um, the 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 um, dunking bird in, in Alien was a touch of humanity. It was, it was great. Uh, but one of the uh, one of the little ongoing running jokes I want to do is I want to make fun of how wrote this has become, how played out, how unimaginative it is, how every time, I, I, and I look at things like the expanse, right? It's all the same. Here's what the future looks like. It's 
pressed metal and, and this. Are there no carpets in the future? Do we forget how to make carpets? Did we forget how to make, you know, comfortable chairs? I look at some of these, in fact, I look at a lot of, of assets and Unreal and um, Turbo Squid and CG Trader and all of these science fiction hallways and stuff. I said, no one could live here. They, they would go batshit crazy. Sorry for the expression. Bat guano crazy. This is nothing but red metal walls. People would go screaming mad in this. So the two things I want to do, uh, just as kind of a joke, is I'd like to have it kind of be a running joke where the, if this naval guy or whoever goes into one of these dark metallic places, the first thing he says, can we get some lights on here, please? Somebody turn on the lights instead of going through the dark, you know, drip, 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 flashlights, you know, circular amber lights everywhere. Woo, woo, woo. No. You want to turn on the lights here? We've had fusion. We've had fusion reactors for 250 years, but we've had light bulbs for 150 years before that. Can somebody turn a light bulb on, please? So he's going to make fun of it being dark. And the other one I was thinking because I've seen so many of these assets, right? So here's the science fiction hab, and what does it have on the wall? Is it a nice picture? Nope. It's deck four. And it's orange. Deck four. And then when you and then when you turn around the corner, there's another thing. It's a deck four. And, and then over here, it's orange, and it's four, and four, and it's four. And I want to have him walk into one of these situations, a couple of these guys. Walk in and just start walking around going, hey, um, what, what deck are we on, do you know? No, I haven't got the faintest idea. It's so frustrating to not know what deck you're on. That kind of thing. Um, just poke fun at it, you know. And that concludes our BillWhittle.com portion of the show, so we are going to go to Facebook because we can, for a while anyway, a little while. Um, the, uh, I mean to smash all of these lazy, that's what they are. The originals were not lazy, the originals were, were brilliant. The, that, that first time I saw uh, Blade Runner, the first time I saw Alien, but my God, that's astonishing. The future prior to that would look like um, 2001. Everything's sterile, brand new, clean. And then along come these movies, and it's like, no, it's, it's a dystopia. Uh, Star Wars, I remember. Not only do I remember it from watching Star Wars in a drive-in theater the first time, but I also remember the commentary about Star Wars in, like, Newsweek magazine or whatever. This stuff looks like it's used. The things are all banged up and dinged up. It's like, yeah, they are. Um, so, let's see. Uh, all right. Let's have a look. All comments. Top fan, Susan Speakman. Uh, is the president's new bout with COVID real or simply a way to keep him out of the public eye for a while? For keep him out of the public eye, A, for a while, or B, from now on while they're trying to get Kamala into shape to step into the presidency. I don't think it's fake that he's got COVID. I'm curious to know how well he does with it. Uh, I find it extremely interesting that once they made the announcement that uh, Biden had COVID, they immediately said, but don't worry, we've got him on a lot of antiviral medication, which we were told was black magic, right? Witchcraft. Uh, and we're also told that uh, 
that Biden was vaccinated and then uh, again, plus two boosters. And uh, they said it's a very mild form of, the, of, of COVID. Can't have it both ways, guys, you know? If it turns out that, that it's such a mild version of COVID that it's just, a, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to minimize it. They're constantly saying, oh, no, no, no. It's just, a, it's just showing minor symptoms. Okay, so you admit then that, that this latest version is essentially, yeah, Fauci got it too, is essentially a bad cold. The original version was a lot more virulent. That's how diseases uh, tend to evolve. They tend to become more contagious, less deadly. So if, if what you're saying is, no, Biden's only experiencing minor symptoms, my response would be, well, if an 80-year-old uh, uh, guy with dementia blows through it, then why are you doing all of these mask mandates for the rest of us? Yeah, now they're minimizing COVID, says Eric. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, no, I don't think, um, I don't think it's, uh, it's uh, fake. Uh, Natasha still has some worries about, about getting it again because uh, a number of her friends have have gotten it and I said like lately um, and I said uh, any of them have COVID before or were they just vaccinated she said no they were just uh, vaccinated I said okay well the vaccines are poor they're poor quality they're at the point now where they say yes we know it doesn't prevent COVID but it minimizes the symptoms maybe or maybe it's a less virulent strain that's that's taking over out there but in any event it's certainly not protecting people against covid the president of the united states fairly high profile individual came down with covid after being uh, inoculated he wasn't inoculated he was given a shot uh and two boosters i think he said four shots something like that it's not a it's not a great record because it's not a real vaccine i mean victrola it's not a real victrola when when my wife worries about getting it again because she sees friends of hers getting it for the first time, I said, "Honey, have you do you know anybody who had it and got it again?" No, I don't either. I said, "We're protected for life. We have lifetime immunity. We paid for that. That that was an expensive uh, item. You know, it was three really awful weeks, but we've got it. And um, and natural immunity is the gold standard of." against which vaccines are measured. You measure a vaccine by how closely it approximates natural immunity, people who survive the, the disease. That's all a vaccine does. A real vaccine is just they're designed to, to introduce a weakened version of the pathogen. Your body recognizes it and, and creates antibodies for it. And those antibodies help the, the uh, immune system identify the real pathogen. So you inject weakened form of smallpox or cowpox, which is close enough, and you get a little tiny bit sick and your body recognizes it. So when the serious stuff comes, it attacks it before it can get a foothold. That's how vaccines work. And you would think that this vaccine would work like any other vaccine. I don't have to, I don't have to continually get boosted for smallpox and I don't have to, um, if I'm inoculated against smallpox, I don't get smallpox ever. I was inoculated against smallpox 60 years ago, maybe. I have no doubt whatsoever. I'm immune to smallpox because that's a real vaccine uh, and it's not it's not manufacturing uh, the outside elements of that and other viruses in your own body it's doing what a vaccine is supposed to do um, and uh, my understanding is that 
that the, there's a, there's one out there now. Is it the I can never remember. Is it Novavax, whoever? Um, uh, that is an actual COVID vaccine. They took the COVID virus, weakened it, or and then they inject you with the virus. Your body develops antibodies. They're not messing around with your RNA. Um, so anyway. Um, uh, Merlin says that smallpox isn't mutating in the wild. It's not now, but it certainly was for its entire lifetime, and, and smallpox was a leading killer among human beings, and it was eradicated. It's, it's extinct. It only exists in labs now. So smallpox used to be out there doing its thing, and now it's gone. It's gone because the vaccine works, and so does the polio vaccine. Polio's gone, too. I'm not worried about polio. I'm not going to get polio. Um, so if it turned out that your polio vaccine Jonas Salk came up with and, and, and Salk deserves all of the credit that he got, certainly deserves it. He saved generations. Um, well, if they're finding new cases of polio, Aesop, it's because the people who are getting it are, were not vaccinated for polio. So w unlike smallpox, which scientific community said was exterminated from the world, it does not exist in the wild anymore. It's only in labs. They probably just knock polio into caves and there's nothing else out there. And if it's making a comeback, it's because we're not vaccinating against polio anymore because polio was eliminated by the vaccine. It was just gone. It was over. Salt comes out. Here's the vaccine. Do you have to worry about your kid getting polio from a swimming pool anymore? Nope. Problem solved. Done. Over. It's a vaccine. It works. Um, so now uh, Fiery uh, Waco says... Uh, uh, I'm not going to get monkeypox, and I never got a vax for that. Yeah, monkeypox is the is the is the new thing. Um, Richard says if Biden, if Biden dies of COVID, they can use it as an excuse to wrap up mandates and lockdowns to combat a threat to democracy. Well, I don't know. Yes, you're right. Absolutely, you're right. There's no question they'll try and do that. I think people are over it. I mean, really think they're over it. They're talking about. Again, I live in the worst place in the country. But there's serious discussion, and I saw it in the LA Times a couple of days ago. They're thinking about reinstating the mask mandate here in Los Angeles, uh, if it gets much worse with this new AB something or other, B7 virus or variant or whatever. I just think people are done, 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 done. We'll see. I'm not worried about it anymore. I, 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 I paid for my immunity. Uh, Paula Meyer, quick. Paula Meyer. Uh, I heard the Chinese are buying up American farmland at an alarming rate. Should the U.S. pass laws restricting non-citizens from buying property in the U.S.? Uh, I remember, and I, I mentioned many times I was a limo driver when I first got out to L.A., and it was a strange job, and I liked the fact that I wasn't in an office and kept my own hours. It was a stressful job and kind of a rough job. But by far the best part of that job was... Um, uh, the fact that I got to meet, we, we didn't do limousine stuff for kids, you know, we didn't do proms, we just drove executives to and from the airport. And so I got to talk to some top, top people. Um, and back in those days, in the late 80s, uh, the big concern was that the Japanese were buying up everything. They were buying every building in, in Los Angeles. And I talked to a guy about this, and I said, I'm kind of, you know, I'd, I'd only talk if they wanted to. Sometimes people want to talk, sometimes they want to be quiet. A good chauffeur knows the difference, and when they want to talk, great. And uh, and he was a, a guy real big in real estate and stuff, and I said, 
should I be worried about the Japanese buying up all this land? He said, Bill, here's the thing. They can't take the land back to Japan. But, yeah. It's not like they can remove the asset, right? I mean, they could theoretically buy the, the Golden Gate Bridge, and they could take that away, and then we'd be without a Golden Gate Bridge. But they can't take away San Francisco Bay if they bought it. They can't ship it out. It stays here. So that actually relieved a lot of my um, concerns about that. Um, specifically with term, in terms of China buying up uh, anything. Mainland China is a, is a rogue state. It's a criminal regime. They don't obey the law. They don't obey international law anywhere ever. Not only in things like you know pirating entertainment stuff all across the board, they 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 dump uh, chips on the market at less than it costs to make them in order to put people out of business, and their fishing fleets are everywhere. Chinese fishing fleets are in all of the territorial waters of every of every sea bound uh, sea bordering country in the world. Chinese ships are out there with their transponders turned off, fishing in other people's waters everywhere. They are a, they have no they have no moral commitment to law and order. It's all just how can they benefit. So my feeling is, look, uh, if you are a member of this rogue regime and you buy this office building and then you decide you want to do something that's detrimental to this country, my response would be, sorry, you know, you don't get to start standing on the, on the integrity of the law after, after you bought up all of the um, masks and gloves on the planet prior to COVID breaking out after you sent people to Los Angeles, hundreds of them a day for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks after you said you couldn't travel anywhere in China because of COVID. You couldn't go from anywhere in China. China was locked down, but you could go from China to America. And that happened for six weeks. Uh, so I have no my moral obligation to do the right thing and play by the rules and, and be fair and honest and all the rest of that stuff is largely uh, eroded by the quality of the uh, person on the other end of the table here. So, uh, look, I'm I'm real fair guy. It's like you set up the, the rules and we'll play by those rules, but you don't get to have it both ways. You want to play fair? That's the smart way to play. It's the best way to play. Everybody wins. You want to play fair? We'll play fair. I'd much rather play fair. But if you're going to play dirty, then we'll play dirty. But I'm not going to play fair while you play dirty. I'm not going to do that. It's not going to happen. Um, so I don't think there should be laws on banning people buying property. I think there's enough laws screwing up the market as it is already. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's probably it. Um, and the same thing applies to Bill Gates, by the way. America's farmer. Bill Gates owns, I want to say, 275,000 acres of land, farmland in this country. Okay. Well, if things go really south because of people like Bill Gates, then, okay, Bill, you may own the land, but you're going to have to go out and harvest it yourself, you know. That's the good thing about this kind of thing. This is why when you look at, like, these uh, supply chain issues, they're serious issues, but food supply issues are critical issues. And we grow a lot of food in this country, a lot of food in this country. So I'd rather be living in America uh, if there's a worldwide food crisis than in 
Brazil or Luxembourg, something like that. Because if, a, if the crisis were to get serious enough and we were to elect actual real politicians, serious people, if it got that bad, we would have a distribution problem. I don't think we'd have an acquisition problem. We'd all get a haircut, all of us. We'd have to really tighten our belts, but it's hard for me to imagine Americans starving given the agricultural um, output of this country. Of course, could be wrong about that, but that's how it feels. Um, William Salisbury. Hey, Bill, last Sunday I had a chance to go to Gettysburg. It was amazing to see and made your telling of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain come to life for me. Thanks for doing that series. Here's what the 20th Maine was facing, ignoring roads. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to share this with everybody since you put it up in Facebook and already have shared it. Come on. Uh, let's uh, zoom in a little bit. It says 20th Maine Infantry, July 2nd. Uh, that's where, that's the line where, um, where uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain uh, stood. Right here, this very here. That's the place. Looking down the hill, that's where the um, Alabama troops were, were coming up. That roadway there obviously has been put in since it became a, a national battlefield. Needless to say, that wasn't there before. And the overgrowth was nothing like this thick. If you look at, um, the earth is so much greener now than it used to be. This is another thing, you know, it's a completely unrelated topic to this, but it, carbon dioxide levels are increasing and the earth just gets greener and greener and greener. Maybe it'll eventually get to as green as it was several million years ago when it was 3,000 parts per million, but I digress. In any event, every time I see pictures like this and the, and the, the American flag there on the, on the bottom is a very nice touch. Uh, this is why I love going to places and touching things. It's like when I stand in this place and I've stood right there, I realize, no, this was real. This didn't, this was real. This actually happened. I get the same feeling when I see the, um, the wreck of the, the Roberts or the Johnston. I spent the first hour talking about. Um, when you see the wreck, it's like, no, this actually happened. I remember very clearly, first time we saw the Titanic pictures, I want to say it was 86 or so when they first came back, I think something like that. And you saw the thing lying on the bottom. It's like, that's, I mean, I didn't doubt that it was real, but there it is. Uh, and, um, and here it is. Here's the actual spot where where history turned on the, on the basis of the actions of, of one individual. Uh, just, that, just that simple. Um, moving on, let me just see how many we have here. It's possible we could get through these. No, it's unlikely, but it's possible. Uh, Clay Bradley, top fan, hey Clay. Hey, Bill, Daily Wire reported on how universities are investing in China's surveillance state, and there's a new bill that would tax those investments at 100%. Libertarians and conservatives often go after the government for heavy taxation, heavy-handed taxation, but this time, would it be worth it? I don't think that taxation is the answer. Uh, I think legislation is the answer. I'm tired of people messing around with the economy. I would say leave it alone, but I'm not saying leave China alone. I'm not saying let China do all the spying they want to or anything. Not on the contrary. I wouldn't put a tax on things. I would, I would, I would look for evidence. And when I found evidence of, of cheating or anything like that, then I would smack them. 
and smack them with tariffs. And I would continue to smack them with tariffs until they stopped doing this nonsense. And as soon as they stopped doing this nonsense, I'd remove the tariffs. Everybody talks about how powerful China is. China is China's economy is a, is a mess, right? I'm not saying it's not a powerful economy. Everything in the world is made in China. That's a real problem. But it's not this invincible juggernaut. They need us more than we need them. I, I genuinely believe that. Um, and the amount of debt in there and, and all, you know, China, if America stops buying from China, China falls apart. It's, it's the end of China. So, you know, when you're going to negotiate with people, you kind of need to know what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, which is why Donald Trump was such an effective, why he was most effective in foreign affairs. He's a negotiator. That's how he got, what was it, five Arab countries to sign uh, the, was it the Abraham Accords? He got five of these people been fighting forever, got him to the table, got him to agree. Why? Because he knows the cards that they're holding, but more importantly, he knows the cards that he's holding, and he knows the values of the cards that we're holding as a country. Americans are holding a very strong hand. We have been for 150, 200 years, and we continue to. It's just we don't believe it anymore, and that is, look, if you're holding four aces, right, if you're holding four aces and a nine, let me rephrase this. If you're holding four kings, right, and you fold because you believe that somebody else at the table might be holding four aces, then you're an idiot. I hope that made the point I was trying to make. You've got to know the value of your own position, right? And, and when you have anti-Americans in running the government, what do you expect? Why would you negotiate from strength with China if you think that your country is finished and over and weak and that they're the future? Why would you Why would you want to get tough with them? I don't think they're the future. I think we're the future. I think it's a privilege for them to be doing business with us, and that's how I would negotiate with them. I, would, I wouldn't take any of this crap, and I would make that abundantly clear, and the diplomatic language I would use, of course, because you always have to use diplomatic languages, my diplomatic language would be, we're not going to take any of this crap, okay? You know what you're doing. We know what you're doing. We're not going to pretend like you're not doing it. And we're not going to pretend like we don't know you're doing it. You either stop doing it or we're going to hit you. And we're going to keep hitting you until you stop. We don't do it to you. And we're not going to have it done to us. So make your mind, make up your decision and, and I'll make a phone call. I'll either say, no, tariffs are off. They're behaving themselves or no, they're cheating. So now we're going to hit you back hard enough so that you stop cheating. We're going to keep hurting you until you stop cheating. We're going to keep hurting. We're going to keep hurting you until you stop hurting us. It's very simple. Even you can figure this out. Um, poo. So that's what I would do. Um, anyway. Uh, let's see. Jason Hatfield has a nice Battlestar Galactica uh, GIF, or GIF as the place may be. I, I always go with GIF person. Eric and Blake. Hey, there's Eric and Blake. Hey, Bill, here's a question that's been bothering me for a while. Well, let's take care of that. Oh, boy. I unfolded it, and it's another uh, novel, but we'll see what we can do here. 
I can't count how many times I've seen online conservatives calling for a repeal of the 19th Amendment, essentially blaming women for the state of the nation. I am constantly pointed out that what should be painfully obvious to any conservative with a grasp of American history and, frankly, math. The 16th, 17th, and 18th Amendments, all products of the progressive era, gave us the income tax, democratic election of senators, and federal government imposing a health mandate on the American people. And last time I checked, 16, 17, and 18 all come before 19. The progressives that started us on this path to ruin were all men and voted in by men. That's an excellent point. Meanwhile, the first presidential ticket to get the support of women en masse, by the way, was Harding Coolidge, conservative Republicans ending the progressive era and bringing in the Roaring Twenties. So what's the reason for this blame, all, blame it all on the women? Has our side really become so intellectually compromised that we no longer pay attention to historical fact or math? Eric, I have to tell you, that is, that is one of the most clearly defined cases of me changing my mind based on a good argument that I can remember. Uh, that's just a, that's a beautiful, great argument. And when I run into great arguments, I change my mind. Because I felt that too, that, that, that we were, that we were getting too emotional about our politics. But how do you argue with this? Those are the names of the amendments. That's data. For me to argue against that would be to argue against this idea that, you know, used to be guns everywhere. Every high school had a shooting club and, and every kid had a BB gun and cap guns. And now we don't. Now the number of shootings has gone up. It's not the presence of guns. And it's not the ease of, of accessibility of guns. You used to be able to walk into Sears and walk out with armloads of guns. It's not that either. That's data. Can't argue with that kind of data. So well done. Changed my mind on that one. Unless somebody provides some counter evidence or argument or whatever. But in any event, um, Bob Knife. 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 I think it's Bob Knife. I'm going with Knife because it sounds cool. Did AOC jump the shark with her fake handcuffs? When will the majority see their phoniness? Uh, she did that for her supporters, and her supporters are not widely known for their intellectual depth. Um, I think the, the, the larger point is not, not what people realize they're phony. I've seen a number of pop culture commentators talking about this and how ridiculous it is. She's a laughing stock among conservatives because we value the truth and we try to abide by it and we do the best we can. Um, uh, I think the larger point, and I pointed this out on my right angle, is that the fact that they have to act like they're handcuffed is good indication that the country is not the dystopia that they claim it is. Because if it was, they would be handcuffed. When you have to manufacture evidence to prove your point, then your point is invalid. And that's what we saw. We saw the manufacturing evidence of oppression that didn't exist. And they're so stupid that they don't realize how badly they've undermined their case by doing that. They don't realize how how much they've weakened their point by this little tiny bit of kabuki. And the reason they did it is because they're very, very stupid. They are not smart people. She aspires to an ADIQ. And uh, she's the gift that keeps on giving. And again, 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 you know, if you have to lie about uh, what, you're, what you say you mean, if you have to cheat, then you're on the wrong team. And if this person is an icon of your movement, somebody this stupid, this this just this stupid, just to think you get away with this, 
then if, if this is your champion, and she is the champion for a segment of this population, then what does that say about you, you know? What does it say about you that you, you're like a, oh, I, think, I think she's wonderful. She's a joke. Uh, Tiki Rocket says I have to agree, disagree. She's incredibly good at media manipulation. media manipulation. She's good at media manipulation with the press and with the people who support her. But when you see a picture of her down at the border crying on a chain link fence and then you see that the chain link fence is, you can walk around it and it's not at the border. She's, she is a, uh, she is a, um, a totem for a particular belief. And the people that she's able to manipulate are the people that already believe in her. But regular people who might have voted Democratic in the last election look at this and they say, this isn't what we had in mind. She is, she is, um, as, as many people have said, the problem with AOC is she says the, the quiet part out loud, right? Um, so... Eric Weisenstein thinks that she's pretty smart. When I heard him say that, I instantly lost respect for his institution about people. She's not smart. Um, she doesn't. Even, she's not even. She's not even astute politically. When you see this person um, wearing an evening gown, what was the evening gown? Was that a? Did it say Black Lives Matter or did it say something else? When you see AOC in an evening gown, period, that is bad optics for her, you know? There she is complaining about, about capitalism and talking about uh, communism, and she's there at this $2,000 a plate dinner wearing a, a tax the rich. Well, she's going in there to a, you know, she's walking into this, and she's not walking in there in her mouth jacket with her fist in the air saying, damn you people. She's going in there, and she's totally grooving on it. She's... Um, She's not wearing a mask, and all the people serving her are, and all, 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 all of it. She's just dumb as a box of hammers. She really is. She's just a stupid, stupid, stupid person. And, um, and so, look, there are people who are already Democrats or people who are already Republicans. It's all about the middle. Where's the middle going to go? And she shows people uh, this. Uh, Marusha Dark says, Bill, I disagree, and I've been saying from day one, she's tactically and rhetorically intelligent. Well, she's not intellectually intelligent, and that's what I mean by ignorant. We underestimate her at our peril. Just look at how much attention and influence she's managed to get in just two years. I've often compared her to a left-wing Candace Owens. Okay, so yes, she's a, she's a national talking point now. Yes, that's right. She has managed to use rhetorical ability to become famous and to become, in fact, the, the spokesperson for an entire political movement. So the question is, does her spokesmanship bring people to her cause or chase people away from her cause? And I maintain strongly that she is scaring away more people than she is. I don't know of a single person who suddenly became a liberal because of, because of uh, AOC. But AOC is a walking billboard for hypocrisy and, and ignorance and stupidity and, 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 and criminal activity. She, she certainly got to be the, the darling of the left. And I suppose on some level that takes some degree of, of, uh, of talent, although, frankly, all you have to do is just bitch about America and, and, and check the right boxes and you got that. But if she is a spokesperson, is she an effective spokesperson? I think she's not only not effective, I think she's anti-effective. I think she does enormous harm to the liberal cause, and we're going to find out in November. She's going to be part, she's a part, she's a big part of this of this wave that's coming. Um, so, uh, you know, there you go. Uh, 
you don't know these things until you have them. The reason, the reason we know Kamala Harris is as stupid as she is is because, because she got a well, because they claim she got elected. So now she's the vice president. Now she gets to talk. Uh, well, Tiki Rocket says, I disagree with Marusha Dark. I don't think she's steering anyone away. The Democratic agenda is AOC's agenda. Yes, she represents the progressive movement of the Democratic Party, but the progressives are taking a bath. They're getting walloped all across the board. And so if she's the, part, if she's the, the, if she's the figurehead for a movement that's in full retreat around the entire country, okay, that's good. That's good for us. That means she's not doing what she's supposed to be doing, which is bringing people to the liberal cause. Nobody's becoming nobody's becoming a, a, a liberal because of AOC. AOC is appealing to people who are already liberal. She's a crazy, insane, neurotic woman, white woman, well, young white woman, whitish. I don't even know what, how you grade these things anymore. I like the thing from Family Guy where you have to hold up a little color chart and figure out what she is. But in any event, nobody's nobody's like, wow, that, that is something. Now, take Bobby Kennedy, for example. Bobby Kennedy, who, of course, rock rib conservative compared to these people, but Bobby Kennedy pulled people, and so did John. You know, it's like, ooh, well, that guy's got something going for him. I kind of want to be associated with that. Nobody wants to be... Uh, I'm not saying she doesn't appeal to people. I'm saying she only appeals to people who are already off the deep end. And for other people, when they see her acting like she's handcuffed, it's a joke. It's a joke. Tiki Rocket says, I'm not convinced that the red wave is anything different than normal midterm losses. Well, we're going to see about that, aren't we? We're going to see about that. Uh... Trevor Duell, hey, Bill, now that you've been married for a while, what are your thoughts on the topic? Um, my thoughts on the topic are, uh, I wish I'd done it 30 years ago. I remember very clearly before I got married, in fact, before I met Natasha, reading uh, studies that say that married men live another 10 years or something. So that can't be true. That can't be true. And then I got married, and then within a week I thought, only 10 years? Uh, I'm not an easy person uh, to... Uh, not that I'm not an easy... It's not that I'm not an easy person to get along with. It's just that... it's. Let me rephrase that. It's... It's hard to find somebody who holds my interest, uh, and and she does. My um, my. Uh, whenever we go on a long drive, uh, the time just like that it just flies. Or when she first came, which is approaching six years ago, in another couple of days, we'll have another anniversary for that, another celebration for that, but. We went to Vegas, and, and for the first time, and I think the only time in history that I'm aware of, the, the I-15 was closed. It wasn't just slow, it was closed. We sat, in, we sat in traffic for 10 hours. It took us 10 hours to get to Vegas from Los Angeles. And my recollection of the, of the experience was I had a wonderful time. Um, being married just, you know, it's obviously different for men or women. Uh, and I can't comment on the women's side of it. Uh, and I'm reluctant to comment on the men's side of it because, you know, I'm no biologist, but um, it's, it, 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 I almost said it softened you. That's not the word I wanted. It polishes you, you know, being married 
polishes you. It knocks all the rough edges off and, and, and makes you a much better, shinier individual than you were before. It doesn't, I don't think it really takes away anything from you so much as it just smooths out the, um, the rough edges. I am a lot less angry than I used to be. And, and that's with the political situation deteriorating every one of the days of the last six years that we've been together. Um, but yeah, I look back on my life, uh, my single life, and I, I don't know how I survived it now. And, and actually I do, and that's because the person I was when I was single is a much smaller person than the person I am now. Um, uh, I don't, um, that's really it. I, I, the, the, the married me couldn't fit inside uh, the bachelor me. There's not room for that. Uh, Marisha Dark says, Jordan Peterson said that the female equivalent of the hero's journey was Beauty and the Beast, find a man and tame him. Uh, yeah. And now we're, now we're starting to tread on somewhat difficult territory with that word tame. Um, I think the danger of, of, of marriage in a general rule, and I've seen this dynamic with other people than my wife and in other marriages and with other people that I've met, and I'll put this as succinctly and as obnoxiously as I can. Uh, sometimes women will, will, will see a man in the, that, that interests them, and, the, and he interests them because he's a wolf. Right, he's he's competent. He's aggressive. He's you know decent looking. He's not. Um, he's a wolf, and they like the wolf, and they like him out there howling and stuff. And they think, wow, can you imagine if you could domesticate that wolf? If you could have that wolf like be at your side all the time. And sometimes they achieve this, and then, and then they don't know why the wolf isn't the wolf anymore. Why is the wolf behaving like a domesticated dog now? Well, it's because he's domesticated. So the downside of it is if is that I've, I've seen it many times that women don't understand that you, you can't you can't do both of them at the that you that, look if you if you see somebody who you think is dashing and romantic and 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 you know and all of this stuff a lot of that stuff is going to come off if, if you if you put that if you if you manage to get a, a a leash on that wolf and the wolf makes the decision to come live in the house then you're going to have the benefits of having a wolf but he's not going to be he's not going to be the wolf he used to be he can't be i mean he can't be i'll just take the least um controversial aspect of this dynamic I drive much, much more slowly than I used to. Much more slowly than I used to. When I'm alone, I drive more slowly than I used to. I have responsibilities now. And um, and it makes my wife uncomfortable when I drive at what used to be my normal speed. That's one of the reasons why men live longer when they're married. But at the same time, I'm not a cat. I'm not the cat I used to be. You know, I got a kid. I'm 33, baby. It's like you change. And um, when you uh, and and you got to you know both parties have to accept that you're gonna if you're gonna domesticate uh, this look there's some people and I'm talking about a specific kind of person right 
most people who get married are, are, are normal people and they marry other normal people and, and it's happiness and it's all they ever expected. But uh, there comes to, you know, I'm, I'm talking about people who are like, you know, cutting a, cutting a swath through, uh, through life. Um, so what you get is you either get the domesticated wolf or you get the guy who gets married, stays a wolf, and he just cheats on his wife. And I decided I wasn't going to go down that road. So, um, so you get domesticated, and and you uh, you lose some of those wolf-like qualities. Your fangs get filed down a little bit, and that's almost exclusively good, but not completely good. There are elements of that I I miss, you know. But I'm a certainly better person now than I was then, and. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I sometimes have these time travel, uh, I almost said fantasies, really thought experiments are better. Like what would happen if I you know, wake, woke up and it was 2000 or, or something like that. When I, whenever I do that, I think, how would I make sure I get in touch with Natasha? How, if, I, if I were to suddenly appear you know, 20 years ago, how would I contact her? How would I get a, how would I, how would I, how would I reproduce this miracle? Um, and it scares me to think about it. Because uh, I can see lots of ways of screwing it up. Somebody said, well, were you ready then? No, I wasn't ready. I got married the first day I was ready. I married the first person that I ever wanted to marry. I married. I never met anybody I wanted to marry before. And I uh, I always knew, maybe it's a result of having you know, divorced parents, but I remember thinking, I'm going to do this once. I'm, I'm going to do it once. So that's that. Um, Merlin Wendable. Hey, Merlin. What's your take on former comrade Bill Maher? Lately, he sounds more and more like one of us. Yes, there's a lot of that going around, isn't there? This is because the Democratic Party is turning into a bunch of lunatics. Lunatics. Bill Maher... Bill Maher has always had, I respect him for this, I think he has very low standards of, of um, reality, but when, when something crosses those standards, he says something about it. In other words, I don't think he's, I think he's blinding himself to a lot of the reality that's out there, but, but to his credit, when he sees something that seems ridiculous to him, even if it's stuff that his own team is doing, he says something about it. And, um, and a number of people I want to say Richard Dreyfus of all people. I seem to remember him like suddenly, like either being interested or showing up at somebody's thing or being or talking about it or whatever. Um, the big shock, of course, for converts to conservatism, the big shock is the the realization that we're not what they said that we were. That's a big big surprise when they say, you know what, I can't be part of this whole insanity, woke insanity anymore. I guess. I'm, going to have to vote Republican or may have to even meet Republicans and then they meet them and they turn out they're not the racist uh, mongers, you know, that they uh, monsters that they thought they were, that they were told they were um, and that's a kind of a nice benefit so he's not the only one um, who, uh, uh, I didn't see the interview but John Cleese was just interviewed by the Babylon Bee, Babylon Bee is is as conservative as a guess, just the fact that they got Cleese is is saying that the the tide has changed. Cleese is a big left winger his whole life, and Cleese is complaining about woke wokeness killing comedy. He's right, 
but he's the guy who spent his whole life promoting left-wing politics. So, sometimes the cause and the effect are separated by decades, and sometimes it takes that long to see uh, what happens as a result of the decisions you made when you were younger. And I made some, not even so much made bad decisions so much as I just believed a lot of stuff that was just ridiculous. Uh, Steve Young, are we conservatives too preachy? Are we driving people away? I'm asking for a friend. Um, I think the preaching is all on the left these days. That's why I'm saying the, the whole the whole tide is not only turned, it's just it's just rushing out now, right? We used to be the party of people, don't you do that, and this is, you can't do this in your home, and this is your, you, you're not allowed to do this, and, and how dare you, you know, sleep together when you're not married, and that used to be what conservatives are. We used to be the people lecturing people, now we're the ones who want people to stop lecturing us, right? Who's doing the lecturing now? It's the progressives, they're lecturing us about everything all the time. You shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do this, you're going to kill the planet, this is a carbon footprint, blah, 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 white privilege, blah, 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 all of it. They're the ones who are doing the preaching. They're the ones who are joyless and 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 unhappy and uptight and all of the other things. And P.G. O'Rourke was right there, writing at the time that that switch started to happen, which really kind of happened with Reagan, somewhere around in there. And that's why I, I admired him so much, because he pointed out to me that conservatives aren't the one doing the whining anymore. He said, he said, look, Look where, where where are all the good-looking women at? He said that's where you want to be, <laughs> and and he said they used to be at you know hippie rallies, and now they're now they're going to school board meetings and you know conservative moms. Uh, but no, we don't. I don't think so much our problem is that we lecture people. I think our our major problem is number one, we assume that we're fighting people who have the sense of fairness, and we're not. And number two we are constantly pointing out how wrong they are without providing alternatives. That's the big critical weakness. We criticize Obamacare, but we never say what would be better. And what would be better would be going back to a world where a doctor had patients and he had time for them and he would make house calls. Why did that happen? Well, better question is, why did that stop happening? Well, stopped happening because it no longer became economically feasible for doctors to make house calls because it took too much of their time. They had to see more patients in their office. They had to increase their volume. One of the reasons they had to increase their volume was to pay for malpractice insurance that they didn't have to pay for back in sooner times, and so on. And now they have to hire even more people to uh, get an army of people that you have to pay to deal with the government. You got an army of people that have to pay to deal with the insurance companies. Back in the old days, you could just be a doctor, not anymore. But you could go back to that. There's no reason why you couldn't, but you would have to fundamentally change the structure of of how healthcare is administered in this country. And that's tougher. But there are a number of ways to get there, and we never talk about them. We just say, this is bad. Okay. So we say Obamacare is bad. We spent 10 years doing that, and I did too. But at no time did we say, this is a better option. Why don't you just do this? And there are better options. There are much better options out there, and I've heard them. But we seem incapable of doing that. I think that's probably the... The, the number one issue for conservatives recruiting. Mark Archer, whoever the kind soul was who was bumping unanswered members' forum questions to the next TSL question list seems to no longer be doing it. I will bump my unanswered questions there right now. Okay, well, I already answered them. Um, 
George A. Freeland, uh, regarding the colony's universe, there are eight stars within a 20 light year radius of Earth that are bigger than red dwarfs. Anything to say about them? Who, if anyone settled them, why did the heroes have to look farther away? Which starport is the most like Newark? Congratulations, you win the internet for the day. Yes, and I think I think my star map goes out to 33 light years. I think that's about where the limits are. And I think this, you're absolutely right about the stars out there. Uh, you said you didn't include red dwarfs. Red dwarfs are a problem for life because they tend to be flare stars and so their output is erratic. So even if you had a planet that was much closer to a much dimmer star like a red dwarf, you have problems with life uh, evolving there because you're close enough to be warm now but you're also so close that the unstable flare in nature means that the planet's sterilized and so on. But that doesn't mean you couldn't have a technological society there. Um, the, uh, I went out to about 33 light years. And the thing that's interesting about looking at real interstellar space as it exists, first of all, uh, just as a quick aside, there are brown dwarfs that have been discovered, and, and there may be millions of them nearby. We, we've we only discovered a few of them. Uh, there's a couple of blown, I want to say they're Gleesey, Gleesey objects, I want to say, but some of them are very close. They're like, I think it's, may even be closer than Barnard Star. I don't think they're any of them closer than uh, Proxima Centauri or the Alpha Centauri system. And I think right outside of Barnard Star, six light years, but they're they're out there and they're they're essentially brown dwarfs. They're They're super Jupiters and they're not fusing hydrogen. They're not actual stars, but they're generating enough heat through gravitational uh, collapse to be essentially red hot and generate heat. And if you got close enough to those, you might be hot enough to, um, to you know, warm a planet. And so out there in the middle of the void, there may be, well, there's no question that out in the middle of the void, there are substars. And it's possible, probably even likely, that these brown dwarfs that are not real stars, because they're not ignited it's possible that they have planets because they're very massive they're i forget what the criteria is i want to say it's about 20 20 jupiter masses maybe 12 something like that you need 12 jupiter masses to have enough matter there so that the gravitational pressures are strong enough to fuse hydrogen at the core then you got a star got a small red dwarf star but it's it's a star so it's possible that they're out there, but in any event, there's a bunch of them out there, and that's kind of cool. That's a almost like a, you know, it's almost like a secret cave island. You know, it's like a, it's like Archvillain headquarters underneath the volcano. You know, way out in the middle of nowhere where nobody thinks anything is. It's a little base out there. You know, uh, but regarding the, the the bigger question, so uh, not as it turns out, and not surprisingly. If you move out from the solar system, looking at real stars, what you find is that there are logical pathways, uh, routes, routes. Uh, so there's a couple of like arms there's one arm that goes off in one direction and goes through barnard star and then another arm goes through you know alpha centauri and and you know and then and and when you when you 
look at them, it takes a lot of work. Do I have that handy? I think I do. Hang on. I'm almost positive. Oops, hang on, hang on, hang on. Nobody panic. Oh, here we go. So I, I got into Space Engine, and um, and while having the ability to zoom around on computer electronically is great, sometimes if you really want to do serious work, you have to make a hard copy. So this was a result of a lot of work. Um, and uh, the I've got two of these. These are, uh, this is me, um, my nap of, of the uh, actual stars. Uh, where is Sol there? I see Proxima in the middle. Oh, Sol, Sol is up. Uh, yeah, I can't point out to it. But you see the one in the center there, the dead circle? That's Proxima. Uh, that's Sol in the center there. That's our sun. So you can see one arm goes up to about the, you know, 2 o'clock position uh, to Proxima. One comes down at about, I'm sorry, to Barnard Star. One comes down at about the 4 o'clock position to Proxima. There's a six o'clock route down to Wolf 359 and there's a, um, a, a largely dead route at uh, eight o'clock out to Leuton uh, 859. Those numbers are uh, distance in light years. And if they seem weird that one line seems like shorter but it's got a larger number, it's because it's a 2D representation of a 3D map. So um, I found I don't know if that's it. It might be. But you can see that if you take a, a, a route out there, you start to get a cluster. Let me bring the other one up, because I know that the colonies is out. It's been a long time since I looked at these things. Yeah, this one's considerably. The first one was a draft, obviously. Let's see what we got here. So, um, so here's, here's how the colonies uh, works. Um, we're going to assume that at this point uh, everything out to 20, 22 light years has got a, you know, a, a railway line. It's got a, a Stargate route. Um, and by happy, I don't know if it's coincidence, maybe the story evolved because of this, but if everything's in a 20, 22, 25 light year sphere and everything's kind of, that's where your main economy is, if you go for a reach, if you go out to like 31, 32 light years, you just get to one star. But if you get to that star, then that star all of a sudden opens up like six systems that are within two, three light years of each other, right? So, um, so, uh, that's, that's the colonies. They're far enough away but they're close to each other. They're far enough away so that it's an effort to get to them. But if you make that effort, then once you get to the first of them, then you get a whole bunch of stuff. And so uh, the, the hard work in writing this thing is how do you overcome the obvious? I mean, in other words, you have to ask the questions that, that you know, fans would ask and, and in the case of the colonies the question would be well why if, if these if this cluster here is is uh, you know really attractive why aren't there people out there already 
I mean, obviously you have probes and probably at this point you've got space telescopes to certainly know what planets are around there. We know that already around a lot of stars just using our technology now. Um, so why is it that no one has gone out there before our guys? And I had to think about that and I realized that in the founder's story, the political story, there's a group of people out there, wealthy people, who, who are done with this whole Earth thing. And they, they're the ones who are basically, they're the founding fathers. And they've got some money. And because they've got some money, they sent some probes out there. And because they owned the probes, they released false data from the probes. The probes reported all the planets in the position because that's obvious from even from Earth. But the, but, but the data that they that they released was highly uh, filtered to make it look much 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 less attractive than it really is. And I thought that's a pretty good solution because if you leave it alone, sooner or later somebody's going to want to get there. And and the whole business about the colonies, in order to make the story work, they have to be, the American colonies were far enough away from Europe so that you couldn't just walk over to them, but close enough to each other that they could function as a unit. I needed that. I needed that dynamic, exactly dynamic like that. So the problem is, once you realize the new world is the new world, why doesn't everybody come? Well, by the time it became clear, the British had basically colonized the entire coast of North America, right? I mean, the Spanish had Florida and, and the French had Louisiana and the Gulf and stuff, but and, and inland because they had trappers and stuff, so the whole Louisiana purchase. But basically, all the good real estate was taken by the British, and by the time the other people realized just what they had found there, the British were established enough to be able to keep them British. So that's basically what um, what happens. I've got this... I've got this real world, now I don't know what the state of the planets are out there, but the cluster is real. I've got this little cluster of colony planets, colony systems rather, and they're far away. And so what I've done is I've had to find a way to make sure that nobody else went there because they can do the math too, you see. And so the only way that I thought you could deter those people was to say, oh, we've already been there. And there's nothing there. Here's the data. Take a look. Would have you'd have a very, very small number of people in on that. It's not like a conspiracy that would require hundreds of thousands of people. This could be this could be something that could be, if it was an unmanned probe, you could probably keep this down to, you know, twenty thirty people. Um, so, that's what they do. They 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 say we've. Everybody's sending out probes. Everybody's looking at these resources, and the further out we go. You know, if you build a Stargate route to 20 light years out, then you can start from 20 light years. Uh, you don't have to send everything from, from the solar system. You can start sending probes from the furthest reaches, and they go out and do exploration. So it just expands like a, like a neural network. And there's this little cluster that I found, and, um, and uh, this Mauritius says, what's stopping competing interests like China from sending their own probes to the same place? What's stopping them is, is that somebody's already set a probe there and said that it's garbage. That's what's stopping them. That's why they did it. That, that's why they did it. 
it's an it's an expensive time-consuming process and why would you why would you go to a place that somebody's already said is garbage especially when there's so many other things out there and parenthetically it's in the opposite direction of the Chinese arm so um, so why would they trust that their competitors did? well how do I put this There are areas in the interior of Antarctica. Antarctica has been mapped. We know all of it. But there are areas, and when I say areas, I mean areas the size of Texas or larger, that nobody goes to. There are bases out there in Antarctica. We go to the bases and occasionally we'll send a field team out to do some research or look for meteorites or something. But virtually all of Antarctica has been, all of it's been mapped, but none of it is inhabited. So we're taking the word of the people that provided the maps, right? They're the orbital maps and stuff. So, so if, if Google, for example, has a picture of Antarctica, there's no reason to set up your entire GPS system to make sure that Google's telling you the truth. Um, so that's that's basically my argument you know we we have google earth you can look at any spot on the planet and since when i look at my house on google earth and my house matches where it's supposed to be and since i go to google earth and look at all the places i've lived in my life and they're all where they're supposed to be then i come to trust google earth and google earth could create an entirely different completely different landscape out in the middle of Canada or something and I'd have no way of knowing right if it were if there was a city out in the middle of of uh, of Canada and and I look on Google Earth and I don't see anything other than forests I'm going to believe that it's forests especially if it's surrounded by forests so I think that's a reasonable um I think that's a reasonable explanation uh you don't map something that's already been mapped if mapping something is tremendously expensive and time-consuming and if those people have always been honest in the, in the past. And now we get to kind of where modern politics come in. right? The, the, the Chinese think that, that the West are idiots because they share all their data for free and, and half of the stuff they have is reversed-engineered Western technology. They look at us as a bunch of suckers. Why are you giving this stuff out for free? Well, scientific research. Why would we keep it to ourselves? So we've had two, three hundred years of leaving all this information out on the table for anybody to pick up, and so we leave this out on the table for anybody to pick up, and they pick it up. And say, oh, it's nothing here. They're, they become essentially become victims of their own um, paradigm. Uh, they have taken us for idiots for so long that we give them accurate data on all the other systems. Why would we suddenly not give them accurate data on this one? Now, any explanation, you know, any any dramatic thing that you need, you you lazy writers don't even consider the question. Uh, half lazy writers consider it and either don't address it or they come up with a lame excuse. Good writers come up with what seems to be a solid excuse and I'm sure there's another layer to this that I'll develop eventually that'll make it pretty near airtight but eventually eventually you have to um, you just have to say well that's what happened and if it seems unusual to you let's not forget that on the morning of December 7th the radar operators uh, at 
Pearl Harbor picked up huge numbers of incoming aircraft. And they didn't sound the alarm because they were expecting a flight of B-17s. So, you're telling me that the Pearl Harbor raid was picked up on radar before they got there? That's exactly what happened, yes. 100% that's saying that's, that's true. That's what happened. So, there are things that seem almost unbelievable through history that just happened. And that's where I'm kind of um, going with this. So, just to put a cap on this backstory by the time we enter the story the backstory is is that the, is that china has done something that has genuinely upset revolutionized the balance of power i'm going to have it established as lore this is reasonable too is that these stargate lines are fantastically expensive there's no question about that and they take Decades. Decades. Because you've got to plant every one of these things at slower than light speeds. If you're going out 20 light years and you're building the last one of these things, you can go down the, the line and skip and skip and skip, but eventually you still have to go light years and light years and light years. So they're expensive and they're time consuming, and, and it's just been just like the open navigation of the seas. We, we, we agree that the open oceans are open to navigation. But the Chinese are going to upset this apple cart. And the way they're going to upset the apple cart is they're going to build their own Stargate line that will be only accessible to the Chinese. That'll be the first time in the history of, of this alternate universe where, where anybody's done this. It's always been an international effort and, and always been essentially open colonization. Now China says, well, we're, you know, they don't announce it, obviously. We discover it. They've already discovered it, that China has basically done, we, we found these, and we're going, we're building our own, and you can't, you can't ride. It's ours. Okay? Um, so, uh, so that changes everything. Now, it starts a, it starts a uh, arms race. It, now, everybody's got to do this, right? I mean, everybody plays together, or, or everybody plays by themselves, and now it's like, okay, so you've basically set up the Chinese arm, and these are yours, and, and we can't get to them because you control the gates. All these other things have been open to anybody who can get there, but you're going to do this. So if there's going to be a Chinese arm, now there's got to be an American arm. Now there's got to be a European arm. Now got, everybody's going to have to do this. And, um, and that's how China behaves today. I'm not picking on them. I'm not, I'm not um, slandering them. This is what they do. We talked about this an hour ago. Um, they fish in other people's waters, and they don't care that it's illegal. So there you go. And I thought I might be able to get through all the Facebook questions, but it looks like I don't think so. Let me have a look and see what's left. Is that all? I may, I may be able to get to all of these things. All right, two to go. Uh, I'll do it. Eric Blake, um, Hail Vectron Bill Little by Vectron's Golden Claw. Oh, here we go, another novel. Um, so Eric is talking, oh, I'll just read it. Uh, 
May the new entertainment studio you propose today enjoy many remarkably high-quality creatives such as myself. I'm proudly co-author of three published stories in the Sherlock Holmes anthologies that you can order on Amazon. Should you read this question tonight, I'll post the links below. Please do. I'm looking forward to seeing this. So from one writer to another, Bill, of the Champing at the Bit, one on God's green earth, do you ever wish is, do you ever wish you stood in bed? You asked so this on a virtual signal episode, and I know it's a bit like saying chomping at the bit, it's actually bad grammar. Of course it is. That's why it's a joke. I should have stood in bed. That's a joke. So, Bill, what exactly happened to the English language right here? I distorted it in order to make a joke. Um, and not just... It's not just a joke. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a saw. I mean, it, it's it's been used hundreds of times. I should have stood in bed. I, I would have thought that would have been clear. Charles Tomes, last one. With ten thousand units shipped eight months ago, per K E Arms comment on an older YouTube video. Since their beginning of production in twenty twenty one, the what would Stoner do? Monolithic polymer lower stock hand grip for the AR-15 pattern rifle might seem to be in general use. Doesn't this invalidate the current House bill attempting to outlaw AR pattern rifles and derivatives? What does this imply for the Blue Blazer regulars? Should BBI begin laying in older, less legal, obviously less evil weapons such as the M1 Garand chambered with 30-06 and FN FAL or the M14 chambered 7.62 since they are on uh, weight? Uh, so I think the question is they're, the left is an obsession with the AR-15. The, the legislation in California was written specifically to ban the AR-15, but they couldn't ban the AR-15. They had to say, well, we're going to ban all uh, semi-automatic rifles, okay, and uh, all of them, well, the ones that have a pistol grip, okay, a pistol grip, yes, and a detachable magazine, okay, detachable magazine. And what else? Um, well, what else does the AR-15 have? So they basically wrote laws to ban the AR-15. They didn't say we're banning the AR-15. They said we're, we're, we're going to ban guns that have the qualities of the AR-15. And, and if you take these qualities away from an AR-15, it's not an AR-15 anymore. One of, the, one of the workarounds, which I never used because I just frankly hated it, but one of the workarounds uh, around California law was they sold for California use an AR-15 that was exactly the same as a regular rifle, except instead of a pistol grip, it had a... Uh, uh, the same kind of grip you'd have on a on a Garand or something, um, and that's how they beat the law. He said, "Well, the the banned weapons have a pistol grip. We don't have a pistol grip. Yes, but it's an AR-15. Yes, but it doesn't have the pistol grip. That's what the legislation said. So these idiots tried this again with the with the bullet button. What are, what can we do to ban the AR-15? Well, it's got a detachable magazine. Okay, let's ban detachable magazines. That's what, that's what we'll do. We'll ban detachable magazines." So these big brains and all these liberal lawyers get together and say they're going to ban detachable magazines. And millions or billions of dollars are spent on this legislation and all of the money and Soros and the rest of them are pouring into this stuff in order to d disarm the population. And they pass legislation. Hooray for them. You cannot have a weapon that has a detachable magazine on it. Okay. So then the good guys say, well, since we want to comply with the law, sir, what is the definition of a detachable magazine? Well, that would be a, a magazine, something that holds bullets that that you would that you wouldn't need a tool to remove. You would, 
it's detachable, meaning you can pull it off. Everything's detachable if you break it down. If you disassemble anything, it's detachable. My car is detachable if I, if I go in and loosen up enough bolts. I can make any part of my car detachable, but the definition of detachable is something that's not removable without tools. So the good guys say, that's it? That's the definition? That's it. Okay, we'll be right back. So the next thing you know, the, um, the lever that you press to drop the magazine out of an AR-15 is gone, and it's replaced with a circular piece of steel, small one, and inside is a button. And in order to drop the magazine, you got to push that button, but you cannot push the button with your fingers. It is impossible to detach that magazine without a tool. What tool do you need? Well, as it turns out, an AR-15 round is perfect. You pick up the AR-15 round, you pointy little bullets, and you and it drops out, and comes a new one. And then somebody said, well, why go to all the trouble of grabbing a, a round when you could have a ring, and the ring has a little tiny little metal stud on it, and you use the ring to, to, to touch the bags. That's your tool. Ta-da! And that's when I bought an AR-15 with a bullet button. Then the geniuses said, well, after, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of AR-15s were sold, they said, well, we're going to change the law now. You're making us look like idiots, so we're going to change the law. Okay, what's the new law say? The new law says that you cannot buy uh, a weapon that has, um, it's no longer a detachable magazine. Now, in order, to, in order to reload the weapon, you must disassemble the rifle. Okay, you guys are getting serious now, huh? Big brains at work. Yep. So, in order to reload this, you must disassemble the rifle. Well, I guess that's the end of the AR-15, huh? You bet it is. And then a few days pass, and some gunsmith somewhere says, okay, the little lever that drops the magazine, that comes back. But now, he's got a little button that you push, and it cracks the rear. It's like the, the AR-15 has two pins holding the upper and the lower, and the rear one is now a, a, a mechanism, and you push it, and when you push it, the, the, the lower and the upper separate that much. And it'll go flying around all over. The, it, just go, it just cracks it. just cracks it. How far does it crack it? It cracks it enough to make it legal. It is You have just disassembled the rifle. And it takes you about well less than a second to disassemble the rifle. Once that, once that little crack appears, now you can use your lever, drop the magazine, put a new one in, click. It's not optimal, but it's better than a New York reload, which is grab another rifle. So this is what they do. And, and so, look, they're in full retreat. They, they launched their sneak attack and they got what they got in 2020, but um, it's not gonna, um, it's not gonna last. The, the Supreme Court has ruled on this and, and, and they, can, they can try, look, they can try all they want to, it doesn't matter. They're not very smart people. We will find a way to get around that. And we shouldn't even be having this discussion, obviously. And the simplest way to shut up the argument about, well, that only applied to muskets, is to say, well, then the First Amendment only applies to um, things that are on a printing press or, or maybe written with an ink um, quill on, on parchment.
your First Amendment rights don't apply to you on electronic media, the founders could never have imagined such a thing. It's the end of that argument. Free speech is free speech. If you want to go back to the, well, the founders never anticipated, okay, they, so they only saw muskets. That's why they said able to defend yourself. They didn't say you have the right to bear muskets. Well, they would never have imagined the, the, the destructive power of the AR-15. Well, they could never imagine the destructive power of Twitter either, but your free speech protections are, are still good there, right? Well, at least in the, in, in the world that's not owned by these fascist tech giants. Well, by God, we uh, actually got through all of the BillWiddle.com and all of the uh, Facebook questions for the first time in 100 years, I guess, something like that. And we've been on the air for three hours now, so it's probably time for this one to go home. Um, and we, yeah, so, uh, and that's what I think I'll do. My wife called while I was on the air, but, you know, the show's, show must go on, so I'll give her a call back. Uh, this program and all the others here are um, are made possible by the uh, members at BillWhittle.com who pay for the show so that, you know, you don't have to. Uh, and if you want to do something about that, you can go to BillWhittle.com and become a member and you become one of the big family, get access to our members-only forum, and you can join the writer's page there and get your priority boarding as far as questions are concerned and all the rest of it. Um, all right, I guess that's about it. So uh, it's uh, the 21st of Ju uh, July. God. Uh, and um, we will sign off now, and we'll see you next, rate, next week. We'll see you next week right here on the Stress Lounge. Davidimus Populum. Latin.